0: Hey, everybody. Uh, Matt here. So sorry it took so long to get this podcast out. I've been very busy trying to figure out how to manage my schedule with new things, you know, in relation to my dad passing. So uh, again, I apologize. I also apologize. This will be the last podcast uh, at least until March. If you want to get feedback into me regarding anything regarding season six, feel free to do so matt's audio blog at com or matt's got blog on twitter um but uh i will more than likely try to do a feedback podcast for uh march 7th or whatever that date is the thursday after that monday or tuesday but uh i i need uh time here to try and figure out how to manage everything so that i can be sure to be ready for season eight Because we will be coming back with uh, podcasts for that for sure. If not before, we might come back a little bit before. Um, But if you have any feedback to get to me, thanks for sending it. Uh, Otherwise, uh, we will see you for sure sometime in the near future before Season 8 starts. I do have a plan to have uh, Holly and Stephanie and Kelly on as much as possible during Season 8. Uh, Bubba will be busy with his own podcast, uh, the Joffrey of Podcasts, so be sure to check that out. Um, might try to have some of the guys on from Podcast Winterfell, the, my old podcast, if they have time. Um, that's, uh, Axel and Tim and Mike and Donald and Heath. Um, but, uh, be sure to check them out at, uh, dvrpodcast.com as well, or podcastwinterfell.com. And finally, uh thanks for listening to this. This is a particularly long episode. I have a really long Cliff Notes, uh, which is kind of recycled in a way, and I apologize for that. I just don't have time to do uh, a special one, so I pulled something from one of my podcast Winterfell Cliff Notes regarding um the Euron Greyjoy theme. Uh but uh, if you haven't heard that before, then at least enjoy uh that uh and if you have heard it before, sorry for the regurgitation. Here's the podcast. It's very long. Enjoy. That's some music, right? Analyze that, somebody.
1: That's not our area of expertise, Matt. That's yours.
0: Nobody wants to make fun of my singing, okay? So much for that kind of fishing for an outtake uh, <laughs>
2: well, wait what's like do you know one of the last things you said in the pod in that section sorry uh,
0: no because I haven't done it yet three words that's where you try to describe the episode in three words this podcast is now available on iTunes Google Play and more please leave a written review on whatever app you get this podcast from Spoiler alert! When this podcast talks about the television series Game of Thrones, it talks in the context of the most recently aired episode. And when it talks about George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series, it talks in the context of the most recently released book, You've Been Warned. Dedicated to HBO's Game of Thrones and George R. R. Martin's
2: A Song of Ice and Fire series, you're listening to Game of Thrones, Matt's audio blog. And now, here's your host, Matt Murdick.
0: And welcome back to Game of Thrones, Matt's audio blog. It is a look at Season 6, Episode 5, The Door. We're on a Thursday. This episode was written by the showrunners Benny and Weiss, directed by uh, one of my favorite directors, uh, just because he's been involved in so many epic television series like Lost and like this one, Jack Bender. I love this guy. I love the way he directs, and I loved this episode. But we're going to be looking at that today, as well as some of the music from that episode. And I am joined for the third time in this particular season by the Siren of the South, none other than Holly. She is the Siren of the Song of Ice and Fire of the South. Holly, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Matt. How are you?
0: I'm fantastic. Great to have you along with us. And we're joined by the siren from Atlanta, Atlanta. <laughs> His name is Bubba. Actually, he is the founder of the Double P Podcast Network. You better know it as Double P Media from now on. Look him up on Twitter at Double That's the word double, then the letter P-H-Q. We welcome back, Bubba. How are you, sir?
2: I'm doing better than our buddy Hodor is in this episode. I mean, Odor, come on, snap to it. Let's go.
0: Yeah, he you know, he could have held the door a little bit longer, is all I'm saying.
2: Oh, my God. Well, we we never, Uh, Matt, we were starting off on a bad note, because so many people are so emotionally connected to the doorstop, so we got to give him his respect.
0: Well, you know, I just thought I'd do that because I thought it'd be a nice segue to all of the mundane stuff that I have to tell you about right now. Matt'saudioblog.com, that's M-A-T-T-S-audioblog.com, that's where you find all of the back episodes of this podcast. You can also find... Uh, podcast app links. Please leave me a written review on whatever podcast app that you're using that allows that. As well, you can find the contact information like mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. That's M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com. Or you can find Matt's G-O-T blog on the Twitter. That's on the Twitter. If you have any feedback regarding Season 6, we're halfway through now. The deadline is slowly marching forward. It is Tuesday, March 5th, 2019 is your last date to get any feedback in regarding Season 6 or just the series in general as well. It doesn't have to be specific to Season 6. In the meantime, it is a Thursday. We do do the music first. And today, we're not just looking at the Ironborn theme. We're looking at the urineborn theme.
2: The music on Game of Thrones.
0: With this introduction of yet another Greyjoy, with this Euron Greyjoy, Javadi has suddenly had to face the fact that a singular Ironborn theme would no longer satisfy the story. Um, and I had wondered, as a book reader, that if they ever did this in the television show. If Javadi would have to just come up with a separate theme for for Euron or whether he would have to come up with a separate theme for uh, Yara or how he was going to approach this. And instead, what he's done is he's taken the course of the season to transform the Ironborn theme just enough to where it is uniquely Greyjoy and then take part of that and build from that because Euron Greyjoy and Theon and Asha Greyjoy are all of the same house they've separated both Theon and Yara and Euron away from the main Ironborn theme and gave them their own little twists on it. And I love that. But in order to understand how the twisting and and the changes work we really need to go back to the original source. So let's begin by going all the way back to the Season 2 soundtrack and listening to the original version of the theme, What is Dead May Never Die. This is the theme of the Ironborn themselves as a nation. Let's listen. So there it is. That is the theme of the Iron Islands. Now, we used to call this Theon or Yaris theme or the Greyjoy theme because the Greyjoys have always lived by the Iron Way. They've always been iron-born. They've always paid the iron price. And so it was very easy to associate that with them. But what Javadi has done is he has turned this main theme into the theme of all of the people themselves and the Ironborn belief. And throughout the course of Season 6, he has actually transformed Theon and Yara's theme just enough to see that they might have some differences with the Ironborn. For instance, the results of the king's moot, or who should rule. These kinds of things are where the differences lie, and they've been bedded those things into um, the Theon and Yara scenes where this theme is present by adding extra car- chords or changing little things. And I love that, and we'll get into that more specifically here in a moment. But the whole idea of this theme is that it has three components to it, ...that Javadi can modify in order to make things different for individual characters versus the main theme. First, you have the melody itself. And the melody has basically three key phrases within it. Now... Music is often defined in terms of call and response. For instance, a lot of rock and roll is call and response. A lot of blues is call and response. That all comes from the slave hymns that were used, which were also call and response. But what it is, is a phrase is said, and then it is answered. Um, And then a phrase is repeated, and then an answer comes back, which may or may not be the same yet again. Um, So... What we have here is the first, what I'll call the call, is this part of the melody. And then you have the responses to the call. And there are two of those present within the theme. For instance, there is this one. Or sometimes there is this one. So that's one aspect to the Great Joy theme is the melody itself and its call and response nature. Another aspect to the theme is the string arpeggiation. Those notes going up and down a chord uh, in a sequence over and over and over. Um, that acts kind of as a counter melody to the main melody and as a harmonic bed all at the same time. It's very fugal in a box sort of way. But here's, this part is the part that I'm talking about. Now the way this can be varied is sometimes the arpeggio can be in a single note form, like I just played, or sometimes it can be harmonized like this. And here's one great aspect of being able to add harmony to that arpeggio. It gives Javadi the ability to manipulate the harmony to create emotion, varying kinds of emotions, without the need for melody, or to be in support, or even in kind of contrast to the melody, again, as a counter-melody. Again, if we recall back to Season 2, when Theon beheaded Sir Roderick, or, or when he displayed the farm boys to Winterfell, claiming that he had killed Bran and Rickon, remember all of the wild, crazy arpeggiation that we heard that was harmonized in all kinds of atonal ways? Uh, and was very dissonant to the ears as the piece progressed. It continually got more and more dissonant. That at the time, to us as viewers, indicated that it was Theon's kind of descent into madness, or at very least, his uncertainty, because you could see that there was a little bit of regret in the fact that even though he hadn't killed Brandon Rickon, he had killed someone. Uh, so that was uh, certainly a lot of, a, a lot of weight that Theon was carrying on his shoulders but the harmonics within that arpeggiation while he was giving his big speech and shortly thereafter during the end credits was insanely dissonant let's take a listen to that just so you can hear what I'm talking about That's just crazy, right? I mean, you can still hear that arpeggiation in there and still relate it to the Greyjoys, but it's become this whole other thing, this descent into madness, or or at very least this kind of just falling apart under uncertainty. Uh, I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, not because of what it meant for Theon necessarily, but just because uh, as a musician, I really appreciated the ability of Javadi to do that. Uh, and also, I want you to keep note of that, because that kind of strange dissonance, uh, again, whether you want to think of it as madness or whether you want to think of it as uncertainty, it rears its head again in Season 5 later on. And we will talk about that uh, shortly. But there is one third aspect of the Ironborn theme that we need to address first, and that is the actual harmony of the piece, the chords that go underneath. Because as we saw with the Stark theme, what chords you put underneath a melody can change its context totally. And for the most part, with the main ironborn theme, we hear only really two chords of accompaniment. There is the one minor chord, the tonic minor chord, or the dominant minor chord, the five minor chord. Don't worry about the terms. You'll hear that there's just really just essentially two chords going on underneath the main melodies when we generally hear the ironborn theme, at least until this year. And here are the ones that we'd heard in times past. So, now we have the basic ironborn theme lined out and it's three aspects and, and, and how we come up with the base of a the theme. And we'll start with how Javadi can use each of these to change something about the theme, to individualize it to Theon and Yara, or to make it something uh, part of Euron. And we're going to begin with Theon right here because... Simply by changing one chord, or really adding a singular chord, Theon's version of the Ironborn theme suddenly becomes much more personalized, much more Greyjoy than it ever was before. One of the first and best examples of this is when Theon was telling Sansa that he has to leave
1: you're not coming with us
0: i would have taken you all the way to the wall
1: i would have died to get you there mm.
0: Whoa, right? We just outlined how there's really only basically two chords in the main Ironborn theme. We had a lot more than just two chords in this version of the Ironborn theme, which is now subjected towards Theon. Now, part of this is to add emotional depth to the scene as well, to make us feel more sad for the fact that Theon and Sansa are departing. But there is one aspect to the harmony that is retained in many aspects of the theme in this season, and that is the addition of the flat six chord. Rather than just staying on the root during the first part of the melody, he begins adding that chord for the highest note of that melody, like this. Or even with the root movement, to build the chord into a big chord at the end of the phrase, like this. And this, of course, is not like a first-time convention of Javadi's doing this for this particular theme. But it is the first time that he specifically changed the harmony in a consistent fashion. This is to enhance the musical storytelling aspect of the theme. Um, back in Season 2, what it was to be Ironborn was pretty clear. You raid, you reeve, you make others pay the iron price, right? But Theon's journey, as well as Yara's, they've both become much more complicated than just being strictly Ironborn. And that's why we're seeing the graduation of Theon and Yara scenes with this particular theme in them from being just the straight Ironborn theme to being something more complex. Think of all that Theon's been through. Think that Yara basically abandoned her father to go try and save Theon, then found out that it was for naught, Um, and then once again was disagreeing with her father, and then found out that her father had died. There's a whole lot of additional complexity in which we're taking these themes, which were just a general people theme, just applied to characters because that's what they believed in and now we're individually defining what that theme means in the context of the character itself and like I said Yara is going through the same thing I mean she knows that things at Pike are changing they're changing quickly since her father died and let's take a listen to the clip for Balon's funeral.
2: Lord, take your servant Balon back beneath the waves.
0: That part right there is indicative of change in a couple of ways. First of all, it's that flat six chord function again. Um, it's a different chord than what we're normally used to hearing underneath the theme or anywhere around the theme. And we, of course, heard uh, this not really in the context of the theme itself, but we did hear that three-note motive. What was different about that three-note motive, though? Before, we'd always had the theme going up. This time, the theme is coming down. And that's going to be very important when you think about it in the context of Euron's theme, which has the theme going, the melody going down to lower notes rather than up from lower notes. We'll explore that a little further as we go along. But keep in mind, it was Euron Greyjoy who put Balon in this funeral. And so his presence must be felt by us as viewers, even if it isn't known to Yara about who did this to her father. So I thought that was very interesting that he did this. And like I said, I'll expand upon that in just a little bit. But here's the thing. That flat six chord has become very important to both Theon and Yara, even as the season has progressed. In the most recent episode, when they were in Volantis... Listen to what you hear. You'll hear that chord going to the flat six. You'll hear that new chord in there that we haven't normally heard in the Ironborn theme before. You'll hear it when Yara and Theon are talking. We're going to sail
2: to Marine. We're going to make a pact with it.
0: Yes, there it is again. And it's important to note that this is really the aspect that changes most of getting the Ironborn theme to a place that is different for Theon and Yara. But there are other things that Javadi did throughout the course of this season to give weight to Theon independently as well. And one thing that he's done is really simple. Uh, All he did was take those arpeggiated notes that we're used to hearing underneath the iron barn theme, and he changed the tempo. He slowed them down, made them more timid in a way, the same way that Theon is timid. Um, Here's an example of that as Theon arrives at Pike. And here we'll hear the Ironborn theme again, but again at a much slower tempo, as Theon tells Yara that he thinks she should be the ruler. Tell me what you want. You should rule the Iron Islands. Now, changing tempo is one of the simplest tricks, yet it's still very, very effective to define Theon separately from the theme in a way, yet still tie him to the main theme that itself has evolved from Ironborn alone to a much more Greyjoy-specific theme. Now, in this particular case with Yara, we still heard pretty much the old Ironborn theme. That's because they're talking about something that is very Ironborn, who should rule. Um, and no matter how personal that is for them, it still is about the principle of the king's mood itself. And Theon is throwing his support towards her way uh, in the king's mood, which is an ironborn tradition, not a Greyjoy tra- tradition, an ironborn tradition. And that's why we have the main theme. But yet this portion is still personalized by the fact that he slowed it down enough to made it. He kind of Theonized it. Let's just put it that way. He made a he, he theonized it. Now that brings us to the king's mood. And when you think about it, remember what we were talking about earlier about how the arpeggiations and if you change the harmonies of the arpeggios, how that can make things seem unsettled or uncertain or maybe even a descent into madness or however you want to look at it. Uh, that's kind of what is happening to Theon when he first starts to deliver his speech to the king's moot in support of Yara. And one of the reasons why that's happening is because both Yara is unsure what Theon's actually going to say and Theon is probably scared to death to say what he's going to say and uncertain how he's going to say it or whether he's going to have enough courage to say it. And so you have that unsettled arpeggio thing happening. Let's listen to Theon begin his speech at the king's moot. I am Theon Greyjoy, last living son of Balon Greyjoy. So the dissonant stuff was great, but as Theon found his footing, then we heard, again, the original version of the ironborn theme. Not the Greyjoy version of the ironborn theme with the flat six chord in it, but just the straight ironborn theme. And again, that is because the King's Moot is an ironborn tradition. It wouldn't matter if the Greyjoys had ever ruled. It wouldn't matter who was ruling. It only matters that for as long as the Iron Islands has existed, a king's moot has been needed when an heir wasn't clear, or when it wasn't clear who should be the heir to the salt throne. It happened long before the Greyjoys, uh, and it will likely happen long after. It is strictly ironborn, and that's why we get the traditional version of the theme. And yet, we still have the fact that this melody does belong to... Yara and Theon, simply because they are believers in the Ironborn way. That's why they're participating, after all. But as the vote goes on, and people are starting to shout Yara's name, um, something else happens as well. There is a variation at the end that is chromatic, where we have, again, a note coming down from higher, and also a sense of chromaticism happening. And these are both, again, foreshadowings for the Euron theme. They're musical foreshadowings. I love this. He put the melody going down part in the funeral for Balon to remind us, even though we didn't know it yet, this is a rewatch thing that you pick up, but it's to tell us, yes, Euron was involved in the death of Balon. And then we hear this because it's right after this little musical figure where uh, the melody goes down and then the whole chords shift down a half step as well in chromatic sense. That tells us that Euron is about to speak and that is exactly where he starts to speak. Just in case you're wondering what I'm talking about, let me play that for you on the piano. Now, I will say that the What is Dead May Never Die theme from Season 2 does have a chromatic element in it as well. So you could say that this was a callback to it. But I really think this is pointing to us about Euron because of the specific way the melody descends as well as the chromatic chords. I think that's very important to remember. And these are two aspects, just from that last little piano piece part that I played, that are central to actually a new theme for Euron. Because Euron's theme does have some chromatic elements to it. And the fact that the melody descends first, rather than ascends first, um, this is really the place where, from a musical standpoint, the power transitions from Yara to Euron. And in the next clip, which is wonderfully complex, after he's given his speech and he's won the day over, we first hear... The main original ironborn theme, because Euron is being baptized, once again, being reborn and ironborn. This is a very ironborn tradition, and that's why we have the traditional ironborn theme without the Greyjoy Chord in it. We'll just call it the Greyjoy Chord. How about that? Um, then you'll hear the rise of Uron as the melody flips from being ascending to, to descending as we go through several chords that aren't normally there. And that is, of course, Yaron becoming king, more or less, even though he's soaking, he's, I think he's sucking in water at that point, but it's still him becoming king. Um, and then you have just a little bit of Yara and Theon's Greyjoy specific because we hear the Ironborn melody with the Theon and Yara chord, and that chord actually becomes important for Euron too, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but you have that whole little bit there with Yara and Theon taking over the ships, and you hear the Ironborn theme one more time, and with the chord, the flat six chord underneath it, before it's all descending melody from that point on, meaning that Euron has essentially assumed power, even though he hasn't started breathing yet. Let's listen to that clip of your being baptized.
1: Let Euron,
2: your servant be born again from the sea as you were, blessed with salt.
0: just love that. I mean, the development in this piece is just so outstanding. And the only thing that I can think of that Javadi has done in this series that really compares to it, or maybe betters it, was the Battle of the Blackwater and some of the stuff he did there. Um, But this is really one of the most musically thought-provoking pieces for me that Javadi has really done in this whole series. So, once again, we started out with that traditional Ironborn theme because this... Is a baptism of Euron to become Ironborn once again, and that is an Ironborn tradition. Not just a Greyjoy tradition, not just a Aaron Dampere tradition, it is a Ironborn tradition. Then we move into the fact that this is Euron's moment, and the melody begins again descending instead of ascending, and it's going through several harmonic chords to indicate the transition of power from Balon's children to Euron himself. So, instead of the notes being on a constant rise, like this. Which, by the way, that represents the ironborn in another way. It's like the ironborn have always been looked down upon by the rest of Westerosi society. And so they're trying to raise themselves up to a level of respect, or fear, or whatever. He, they want the Westerosi to notice them. So they start from low and they go high. So that is the theme for the main Ironborn. Something that all of the Ironborn typically want. And something that uh, both Yara and Theon want for themselves as well. That is opposed to Euron's descending notes like this. And that really tells you all you need to know how opposite that is of the rest of the Ironborn. Euron feels that he is already above the rest of the Ironborn. He's looking down on them. He's reaching down to them to help them up. Um, and whether that's nefarious or not, I don't know. But I do know that he thinks of himself as better than them already because he has traveled so much of the world because he is so much more educated than the rest of them. So in the same way that the Westerosi look down on the rest of the ironborn and they're trying to struggle up with their ascending notes, he is reaching down um, to be among a lower people with these descending notes, musically speaking. And then you have, of course, that last little victory for Yara and Theon as they take the ships uh which is uh again this part which I just love. Yeah, so nice. And again, there's that it's that flat six chord that has defined them. Now they are in rebellion against the traditional kingsmoot and the baptism in their way because they've stolen the ships. Um so you get the fact that their version of what used to be the ironborn theme, their perception of ironborn is different than what these ironborn have agreed to with Euron by following their traditions. Um, so that's fantastic. And in the end, it's Euron's day. So we start to get the descending notes uh, at the end of the piece. And we even got a lot of that strange, unsettled dissonance in that last chord Because, come on, we all know Euron is just a little crazy. He threw his brother off a bridge, for crying out loud. So, yeah, there's some crazy there, right? And it's great that it's depicted in that last kind of crazy chord at the end of that. And now that the Iron Islands is under his rule, we get introduced to his theme fully. Because he wants to go murder his his niece and nephew. Great theme. Absolutely great theme. There's so many things that are telling about Euron's character in this theme. And as I mentioned before, the descent of notes tells us that he thinks himself above everyone else. But the first part of the melody is not only just a descent, it's a chromatic descent. And chromaticism is often used to depict you know, uh, a nefarious or, or sinister feelings or even a somewhat psychotic nature. Um, and there you have it. I mean, right at the front, his melody is chromatic and descending. So you have that right off the bat, and that's just fabulous. Um, and again, that goes kind of against the ironborn way. Uh, and then we have, wait, what? What's this? Then the next part of the melody is accompanied by that flat six chord that we've heard with Theon and Yara. What? And why would Javadi do this after just having spent half a season giving that chord to Theon and Yara exclusively from the regular Ironborn stuff in order to accentuate the Greyjoy's difference? Well, he needs to put that flat six chord in Euron's theme because even though Euron is quite different from his niece and nephew, Euron is still a Greyjoy. So he has to have that separation as well. And the flat six chord is what I like to think as their blood tie. It's the blood tie between Yara and Theon and Euron. It's the thing that is Greyjoy about them, not just the thing that is ironborn about them. And the nice thing is that because Yara and Theon do uphold a lot of the ironborn beliefs, they just have a slightly different take on it, giving them that blood take, that blood tie cord, uh, you find that most of their uh, melodic senses are in the exact opposite of Euron's. Um, So it creates a great clashing, in a way, of two different ideologies and representing it in a musical sense. But you still can't get away from blood. And so, therefore, you have that flat at 6 chord that they have in common. And, once again, those far-descending melodies, the ones that dip way down and then come back up... Um, That was set up from Euron's entrance at the King's Moot. It was set up actually in Balon's funeral. All of this stuff was being musically foreshadowed, and we didn't even know it at the time. So I think that that's beautiful that you can find clues as to what musical kind of themes might present themselves um, by closely examining Javadi's earlier work. I think that that's fantastic. It's oh, oh, it's for a book reader who likes to do the math, as our friend Bubba uh, likes to call it from the Joffrey of podcasts, uh, doing the musical math is becoming really fun in this series for me right now. So over the course of like these three cues or so from Balon's funeral through to uh, this Euron theme, we, we've seen how the... Yara and Theon have parsed themselves away from the main Ironborn theme, and we see how different Euron's version is tr- truly is. Um, how he just feels like he's over the top of the Ironborn, uh, and that they should do nothing but serve him um, from a psychological standpoint, if the music is telling us that. And, I guess finally there's one other aspect of the original theme that is kind of gone from Euron's theme. There's really no arpeggios, are there? We don't have that in Euron's theme, which is different. Instead, we have these like short active rhythms instead of the elongated notes. Remember that whole key part of the Greyjoy and and the original Ironborn theme was those elongated arpeggios like this. But now, for Euron, we have this in its place. More active strings, more fervor. It shows that Euron is different. It shows that he's non-traditional, and maybe not in a good way.
2: Matt, listening to that music again, it makes me want to kill my niece and nephew. Man,
0: that's great. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely is. It's very inspiring in all kinds of terrible ways. Um, but this story has a lot to offer us this time around, and we'll be discussing the story next. I like to break things down, guys. Uh, Bubba and Holly both know I have a little bit of OCD about how I talk about the series, and they probably hate that part of me as they try to put things into certain categories in our doc notes when we go to uh, try and assimilate our thoughts for this episode. But I like the, for to start out with things that are kind of on the surface, emotional or thematic or things that um, maybe are just skin deep, so to speak. And then we go into our three big things, which can be three things that hit the high points of the episode or how they might affect future episodes or how they might be culminations of past episodes. And then we go into questions that we might have about this episode. Then we go into the smaller points of this episode that we just couldn't fit into any of the other categories. And we're going to start with on the surface.
2: On the surface.
0: Bubba, why don't we turn to you for your first thought about this particular episode. Sure thing,
2: Matt. Well, one thing I've been doing since we've started these great, these great rewatch project on Matt's audio blog is I like to look at an episode and give a little tip of my cap to characters who are no longer with us. And it starts right at the top. R.I.P. Littlefinger. He's not going to make it to season eight. Neither is the waif. Or is it no one? Lady Crane took her curtain call. And her, you know, kind of tripped over a stool. The Three-Eyed Raven left us. (laughs) Leaf left us. A dire wolf named Summer left us. All the children of the forest. Extras. Bye-bye. We lost Hodor. And probably the characters that we saw in this episode who we're going to miss the most is Ned Stark.
0: Oh, As well
2: as Benjen and Rickard Stark. They're no longer going to make it to season eight. And so uh, a lot of characters right there, a lot of characters that what's funny is you Leaf has been in, what, three previous episodes, but she she went out like a boss. And so I think there is some emotion to her death and saying goodbye to all these great characters. Uh, R.I.P. Wonderful characters. We'll miss you in season eight.
0: Actually, yeah, I agree. And uh, of course, the big one that comes to mind is the one that happens at the end of the episode. Uh, Hodor. And it, it's funny because you don't really know that that's his end at the time, but you just feel it because everything, all the circle is all complete. Um, I know, Holly, you have a lot of Hodor feels. Do you want to express any of those?
1: Uh, yeah, it's just too much. This is the most devastating episode for me emotionally. Um, Some people have the red wedding. Some people have Shireen burning. It is, it is this Hodor moment for me. It is just too much. I... Cried so much when it happened, when it aired. I watched the Periscope of Joffrey, a podcast, and I cried through the whole thing listening to you guys. You and Catfish talk about it, blah, blah. Like, just tears could not stop. It was too much for me. Um, I think just because he's just such a sweet and innocent character, and I never really thought too much if he was going to survive the series, but just having to see him go out like this is so incredibly painful to watch. And...
2: Holly, dare I mention anything that might be just as painful? Is there any chance, and Matt, you can get in on this too, is there any chance we see Hodor in season eight, a.k.a. White Mare on Winterfell? Oh. Any chance we see a white Hodor? Oh, please, no. But, I mean, it, you would think it could be possible. Factor Christian, Christian Narn seems up to it and Oh man, that would be rough to see.
1: Thought about that and it's it's super painful to think about. Even worse would be an undead summer coming back. I would that would,
2: Oh, I hadn't even thought of that, Holly. Ouch. You're right. That's tough.
0: Yeah, Holly, uh, we we know about your love of dire wolves here. Um do you want to express a, a rest in peace for for summer here?
1: Yeah, it's it's tough though. It's really I'm kind of what I like about summer's death is that it happens pretty quickly um it's painful you hear her hear him crying and that's terrible but then so many other things happen after that that there's not enough time to really dwell on it so um i'm thankful for that part about it even though i'm really sad that he's gone
0: yeah well uh the funny thing for me and especially this time around um i wasn't as emotionally invested in the hodor death Watching it this time around, which surprised me. Yeah. I know. I know. I'm a terrible, I'm a terrible person. I'm a terrible person. But I really um, found myself admiring the enlightenment of it more so than the sacrifice that was made. Uh, that, the first time that I watched this episode, of course, destroyed me just like it destroyed everybody. But this time around, it, it almost felt bittersweet in a way because. Um for me, this whole thing of, of Bran interjecting that and being the cause of Hodor saying Hodor and and everything that leads up to Hodor holding the door, um the whole idea of the the time travel stuff and, and what it means or what it could mean for a deterministic universe um, this time around, I just found myself marveling in how well it was done and how well it was performed, not just oh, by yeah. Christian Narn, but also uh, we, all three of us attended Con of Thrones last summer, um, and the actor who played Willis uh, slash Hodor uh, was there, and I didn't get a chance to see his panel, um, but uh, I heard that it was really good. And He was a nice kid. He was really nice. Yeah, and um i just thought that he did an absolutely brilliant job you know really with essentially one line repeated over and over and over and over again there's nothing more emotionally impactful than to hear somebody's speech degenerating in that way i mean that that's you know it's like watching cells die it it, it was very emotionally impactful and it was such an amazing performance by that and and the cutting back and forth between him and, and Christian doing his thing, uh, and the way that he just kept resisting and the way that it was starting to overtake him. Just how that thought process of what Hodor, as we know him, was thinking and the way that that channeled through back in time to what Willis was doing. It was so seamless that I just, uh, it, it genuinely felt real, which I didn't think, um, I would ever feel about this show as f- terms of, you know, This is a fantasy element in a lot of ways, but it felt completely real. And that I was just in awe of that, of, of the way it was cut, of the way it was directed, of the way that it was performed.
2: Well, we want you to learn to feel again, Matt. So let's do it.
0: All right. Well, I can tell you something that I feel very strongly about. And that's at the beginning of this episode. Um, and that's the Sansa and Littlefinger conversation. And this was very emotional for me as well. Um, after all the hate that I got for quitting the show and all of the terrible reviews that people left Podcast Winterfell because I drew my line in the sand, Um, it still feels like even with this conversation, and re- remember, Dave and Dan did pin this, Um, it feels like they're kind of just still just trying to tease the audience about, you know, what do you think happened to me? you know and i'm glad that they clarified it a little bit that felt kind of almost like an apology for the way that they just kind of threw cogman under the bus during season 5 uh, i was very satisfied by that um but it it just everything that she describes you know is just if if there's any kind of reminder that i can give to people who Maybe were some of the people that gave me hate for what I did. Um, and maybe people have this kind of notion that, you know, well, this is a world where this kind of thing happens all the time, so it's okay. Or maybe it's not what we in the modern world define it as. I don't believe that an artist ever intends to make you suspend your core values. Suspend your your disbelief. Yes. Suspend your core values. Art is about making you center towards your core values and how you feel about that piece of art. Um, and if you don't do that, you're not an artist at all. You're just a con artist. You're a con man. Um, and I just feel like that that's so important that this speech of Sansa be made not just because you know you have some of these podcasters that were all about oh well the, the see this rape has made her stronger and what have you because I've gone back and listened to some of these man they still don't get it Sansa was already strong that's how she survived this that she's not stronger now than she was she's just able to express her strength better because it this happened to her and um I just hope that anybody who's listening to this understands that because I have no place in this podcast for people who are going to come at me in regards to how I feel about Sansa or what happened to her about the way the writers treated her. And this is to me, um, one of the reasons why it was easier for me to say, okay, I'll, I'll come back to the show. I mean, I watched the rest of season five after Holly convinced me to, um, but it wasn't until this particular episode that I was all in again. And it wasn't because of the Hodor thing. It was because of the son- this Sansa thing right here. So uh, off my soapbox, sorry. Do we have any other on-the-surface points, guys?
2: Well, I just want to encourage Holly to jump in and talk. I I want to talk a little bit just about kind of the mechanics of the scene in a bit. But because you're so passionate, Matt, I feel like, uh, Holly, do you have anything you want to add about this? Obviously, you know, very emotional, traumatic, experience that sansa's describing
1: um yeah i'm i'm like mad i kind of i'm glad they sort of you know addressed it um in a way and kind of show sansa share her feelings about it and be legitimately upset and point the finger at a little finger rightfully so but i really also appreciate how she kind of uses this moment to make him feel powerless for once and because she says she can she has she can have Brianne like cut him down right now and right there if she wants him to and she doesn't and it's just kind of like feels a little bit victorious to have her you know have some agency and like make Littlefinger feel powerless in that moment even if it's just for a moment and unfortunately it doesn't last long because all Littlefinger has to say is will you allow me to say one more thing and then he just sort of you know, kind of has her reeled back in and he still has just a smidgen of sway of, you know, of, of how, what she thinks and some, some power, maybe a little bit of, I not want to say power, but like some sway over, you know, how she feels about things. So it's, it's kind of great up until that point. And I'm like, oh, of course, Littlefinger is going to be able to talk his way out of this.
0: I, I agree, Holly. And I think that uh, that's one of the things that defined to me exactly that. At least the writers took the time to show that it was her original strength that allowed her to survive this because she still has weaknesses. She still has frailties. And this one is a perfect example of that. She hasn't changed. She hasn't gotten stronger. She's gradually learned more over time. She's still on a learning curve. Um, and who knows where that will end her up in season eight. Um, but your point about how Littlefinger is able to draw her back in is exactly the way that I feel like they perfectly defined that um, Sansa had been strong all along up to this point. I agree. Okay, well then uh, I want to just jump in about some of the mechanics
2: of this scene. And I think both of you guys, the, what you were describing, talks about how it was important for these characters to kind of have this confrontation you know, face to face. But of course, as a – you know, now on a rewatch especially, I'm just looking at this and I'm thinking, how are we as an audience supposed to believe this face-to-face happened? So the very first thing in the episode is this big piece of parchment from Littlefinger. So this isn't like something a raven would have carried. Littlefinger sent a writer up to Castle Black with a specific note for Sansa is what I imagine the only way this would work. And then somehow the people at the gate – just deliver it to Sansa Stark and don't ask any questions. The writer leaves. John doesn't find out about this parchment. Sansa leaves. brand leaves. Nobody tells, even if he's no longer Lord Commander. Hey, uh, your half-sister just took off with that uh, female knight. Nobody seems to tell him anything. And it, it's just so awkward, combined with the fact that we're supposed to believe Littlefinger in the previous episode was in the in the Vale of Aaron and in the, you know, uh, somewhere relatively close to the Erie. And now here in this episode, he's all the way uh, at the wall at Molestown. But you have to be willing, and I guess I am too, to disregard the reality where this would probably be Raven communication or something, just because her confronting him in person is so powerful. And then I know so many people had trouble with the way Littlefinger exits Game of Thrones, which is coming up in our season seven review. But one thing that I will tip my cap to the writers too, is, is they try, you know, they're not pulling any of George R. R. Martin's great source material anymore. So they have to kind of come up with these tweaks and these little digs, Littlefinger comes up with on his, on their own. And I just love the little, the last line they give Littlefinger. Boy, that's a tongue twister. Littlefinger's last line, Littlefinger's last line. But anyway, when he's, uh, you know, leaving, you know, he's like, you're going to need an army for you. And she goes, I have an army. And his last line is your brother's army, half army, or sorry, (laughs) sorry. He says your brother's army, half brother. I mean, that is a pretty good dig and really gets to the core in some ways of the kind of end of this season and it continues to next season. So Littlefinger may not have gone out like a champ, but he does have a way of, uh, he knows how to needle. And I don't mean Arya's Needle. I mean, he knows how to get under your skin. And so I, I did like that aspect of the scene, other than the fact of, I, like everybody, I love Sansa going to town on this moron. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, Holly, what else you got for us?
1: Um, I guess – Sort of kind of going back to a little bit of the Hodar thing. Well, first of all, I guess I claim, I always claim that this is my favorite episode, but if you would have asked me two days ago, what else happens in this episode besides everything that happens with Bran and Hodor and the visions there, I wouldn't have been able to tell you exactly what happened. Um, <laughs> so, but it's still such a good episode overall. And it's fun kind of rediscovering all of the great, the great moments in it. There's, uh there's like just big emotional moments throughout big reveals and twists and and it's really easy to forget because it's kind of overshadowed by everything that happens uh, at the end of the episode but um it's it is great and i can still say it's my favorite now that i even know what happens in this
0: episode right on right. And-
1: Uh, I'll just say uh, we were talking about, we saw Sam Coleman, uh, the actor who played young Hodar um, at Con of Thrones. And I actually did get to run into him at the bar and let him know, like you destroyed me. And I was crying for hours and he was really sweet and gracious. And like, of course took it as a compliment, which is how I intended it. I just really wanted to share with him how much that whole scene affected me. And he was very gracious and sweet. And, um, yeah, so that just happened uh, at the bar at the hotel at Con of Thrones. So you everybody should go. You might have meaningful little conversations with people you love watching on the show. You never know.
0: You never know. You never know. I and uh you mentioned how there are so many great moments in this particular episode on the emotional side. I've got a listing of a couple of others too. Um I'll start with this one. Uh and just seeing Arya's reaction to the way the play was produced, um, that gets me. The way how she's humored at first with, when Robert gets stabbed, you know, stuck by the boar and the way it degenerates when, you know, Ned is portrayed as quite buffoonish and then executed. Um, it just really got me. I, I thought Macy Williams again executed something very well and, and the way that Bender chose those moments. And I, I don't want to sound like it's a technical emotional exercise i mean i just genuinely was just like oh man Arya having to see this i mean how much more torturous can it get for her if she's trying to forget who she is if she's truly trying to forget who she actually is in order to become this quote unquote faceless man it just totally got me and yeah i was just blown away by that uh bubba what else you got for us anything
2: Well, uh, this is let me say this is on the surface segment of the podcast. So just because you were talking about the bloody hand, the great play there in Bravos held over for another smash, you know, another month, another smash night for the bloody hand. Uh, Some people, not us and probably not all the great listeners that are checking us out right now, but some people do watch this show. For what they used to call as uh, boobs and dragons, right? And uh, I never talk about something so superficially, but <laughs> this actress who played Sansa, I was like, holy oh, smokes, that's an attractive person, and so uh, it definitely, you know, it, it made me it made me want to come back and see it again. <laughs> check her out in the playbill of this great show so that's this is on the surface it's supposed to be like kind of surfacey point so uh write your hate mail to me right now i'm ready i'm sorry
0: yeah that hate mail is matt's audio blog m-a-t-t-s audio blog at gmail.com don't say i never took one for the team bubba um there's another point that i know that holly and i probably have in common here and that's the jora and danny stuff do you want to talk about it first
1: <sighs> sorry uh, <laughs> um yeah, that's just a very, another, once again, emotional exchange. I feel like every time I end up on this podcast, I'm talking way too much about Jorah. So um, I'll keep it brief this time. But you can really, really, really see, I mean, he confesses his love to her. And it's just such a sweet moment. You know, she loves him back and she's in tears. And oh my God, this this is the, the next, like, highest emotional scene for me in this episode. And it's just beautiful. And you can see it on dario's face too like he knows like he's you know gotten to do a little bit more with Annie than jorah you know has in certain areas but he knows he cannot come between like the love they have for each other and it's real and um and he knows and and that look on his face you can just see he, he's never gonna have that with her and he's and he's sad and it just makes it it just makes me happy for jorah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You just swoon once Jorah says those things. I've always loved you, or I will always love you, in that voice that you want to hear. uh, Doing the whole uh, Dunkin' Egg series, right?
1: Mm, Yes,
0: yes, absolutely, or whichever one it was. Maybe it was a dance, or it was one of the uh, Targaryen ones. Uh, But anyway, Let, let
2: me let me jump in here, Matt. And Holly says she's always talking too much Jorah on these podcasts. Matt, it feels like every time you invite me to be a guest on one of these podcasts, it features an episode of Jorah leaving Danny. So whether it was when Joy left Jorah left Danny in Marine the first time, or when she kicked him out of Marine the second time, (laughs) and now here she's saying goodbye to him again. I, I just have this bad luck of seeing these. And of the three, now admittedly the first two she was kicking him out. This time she's kind of kicking him out to go save himself, which is really heartwarming. But of the three, I feel like I should rank them and I'm going to rank the the second time she kicks him out of Marine for some reason is the most emotional for me. Mm. Then I'll put this because it's more heartwarming and less heartbreaking. And then the least effective was the first time she kicked him out of Marine way back in season
0: four. I just thought the intensity of the one back in season four was so great. I I don't know if I can agree with you on that because she's looking at the ceiling. She can't even look at him. There's just such an intensity there, a a disbelief. And and I, I found that to be more emotionally moving than the second time or, or I won't say this time, this time around, I think Holly's got it right. This time around got me the most, as well, but I, just like the play kind of misconstrued some of the things about the actual events, I kind of came up with my own version of what Danny was actually saying to Jora in this particular case. So forgive my sarcasm, all you Jora and Danny lovers, but, uh, this is what Danny was actually saying. Oh, Jora, you go cure yourself and come back to me. Yes, yes, I know. I've sent you away like half a dozen times. You just don't seem to get the hint. I want my hunk Dario. See him standing right over there. That's who I want. Well, I kind of want him. So I'm going to give you a mission that will actually keep you away from me for a while. Either you'll take a long time to get cured, or you'll die. But either way, that's what's going to happen. No, I'm just kidding, folks. This is what gets me every time. This one, yeah. there is there is a love between the two of these. And yes, Danny's love for Jora is not the same as Jora's love for Danny. At least not in my own observations uh to me jorah is still the eternal friend zone friend zone jorah uh as we became to lovingly called him from i don't know what season two onward um but danny's love for him is genuine regardless of what it whether it's a romantic kind of love or not um and really love is love right so i i just uh another thing that really helps that scene. And Bubba, I think one of the reasons why you rank this, the two highest, this one and the one that you did rank is because of the music that is playing underneath it. In oh. both cases, um, the, the exact same, almost the exact same music is playing underneath this scene as the one that we saw before. And um, I think that that kind of helps you out in terms of feeling the emotion more so.
2: I'll accept that. I think that's a good reason. Yeah. I also, here, let me pitch something. Would anybody, we still have season eight yet to come in case people are listening to this in the future, but let's, let me ask my co-host. Let me ask you listeners. Would anybody be happy if somehow in season eight, Daenerys ends up with Jorah in a romantic relationship or have we gone down this road too many times?
1: I'm raising my hand. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm 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 just not for it. I, I think it would be disingenuous to what it actually is.
1: I, okay. I I really agree with Matt. I'm really inserting myself in Danny's position here when I say that. Um, but I yeah.
0: So yeah. Well, swoon, Jorah swoon. We all know Jorah swoon. That those are the two magic words. Um, but yeah. What else do we have on the surface? Anything, guys?
2: Well, I have a little point. I'll hold off into getting into greater detail in it until we get into deeper points. But since this is on the surface, I, you know, boy, I'm going to reveal too much about myself again. Uh, If I really like somebody, one of the, if I really like a girl, one of the things I do is I say, oh, hey, let's watch Rear Window together. Rear Window is a great classic Alfred Hitchcock film. Uh, But there's a moment in this episode that really reminds me of it. And it's an effective moment. And so Bran's on his illegal vision quest while everybody else is asleep, and he walks through the army of the dead, and he comes up to the Night King, and then suddenly behind him you see all these – all the army of the dead, all the whites, all turning and looking at him, and it's like a, oh, crap, wait, this isn't supposed to be happening moment. And it's so powerful and so effective, at least for me. And it really reminds me of – spoiler alert for this movie from the 50s when Thorwald looks – into the audience's eyes when he looks up and he looks into jimmy stewart's aka the audience's eyes it's so powerful it's like uh-oh we've been caught and it, it, that moment in this episode of filled with great moments is one i always love and always you know it's like the hairs on on my arms stand up it's like uh-oh we're in trouble and so i just love that cinematic moment
0: i'm shocked how dare you spoil a film that's 60 years plus old i mean <laughs> come on man
2: great film classic film
0: yeah uh the You know what? I I ashamedly admit I've never seen that film. I need to watch it. So are you going to ask me to watch it with you, Bubba?
2: You know, our relationship is going to be a bit more like Daenerys and Joris. Oh, that's what I thought.
0: (laughs) Let's move on to our three big things.
2: Three three, three big things.
0: These are three things that we're picking out from the episode that we feel are the most important parts, perhaps. um, Or we can fold them into points that we feel like have a future impact or are culminations of past impacts. And I don't even know where to start with this. Holly, do you want to start with us?
1: My point is, I think this is like nearly the last time we're going to see Bran Stark as Bran Stark. He's going to get like kind of cut off in this mid-download, and he seems like he's going to be himself for a little bit kind of going forward until at least like season seven when that big change comes. But one of those things you don't really think about until after watching everything through season seven is that this is the last time Bran is going to be Bran uh, mostly. And it's it's really, really sad to think about.
2: That's a great point, Holly. It really is. I always say Bran is one of the characters that I think the show has had trouble portraying, mainly because his story so much in the book so far is an internal struggle, kind of a struggle with himself. And so he's having internal dialogues. He's not saying out loud, you know, Mira, it's very tough for me to deal with the loss of my legs and loss of my dreams and being a knight, this kind of stuff. But I think the actor, Isaac Hempstead Wright, does a great job and it almost makes that those kind of painful moments in season seven, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks here on the podcast of when he's, you know, so emotionless with Mira, with his sisters, it, it, it makes it even more powerful. And so it is nice on a rewatch to remember this is our guy and to see Bran's face when he kind of realizes what's happening uh to young Willis and to future Hodor, it, it he does a great job of portraying the pain of, this is this is horrific, and so great point.
0: Yeah, yeah. I totally agree, uh, Holly uh, and Bubba. It, it's like uh, I had that in my thing, and again, this is because I'm watching this after multiple times of watching this, but I I don't want to de-emphasize the importance of losing Hodor, but for me, the much greater loss because of the impact that it has. On the story is this download is the beginning, just like you said, Holly, of the end of Bran. And I keep going back to a couple of episodes before where Three-Eyed Raven was telling him, you know, if you stay in too long, just like we've heard back in season four, you can't stay in the wolf too long, you'll lose yourself. And part of me wonders as we move forward to the episode, like you mentioned, where he does grab onto the tree and he stays so long to find out what exactly happened or what was inside the tower of joy. Um, if that was the reason that he loses all of his emotion, um, that he loses who Bran is, um, because he just stayed there too long. It was one of those points where the three eyed Raven had warned him not to do so because like you said, this isn't quite the last time that we see Bran, uh, as Bran, although he's definitely not all there, um because he has been so immersed in the whole history of the world. But it, it really makes me think about the whole thing about, did he just stay at the Tower of Joy too long? And that's where he truly lost who he was, because it's not really until after that last little gripping of the, the werewood tree right at the base of the wall that we totally lose him. It's season seven when it's less like, who is this guy? Which is, uh, I'm sure was kind of a shock to some people. Um, but the clues were there all along. And, uh, I, I love that. There's a whole lot of stuff that I have about the tree. Um, does anybody else ha- have stuff about what happens at the tree before I get into all of that?
2: Uh Well, I didn't have it under three big things, so allow me to jump around a bit. sure But I had this under questions, so uh, let me get to it. When we see the tree way back in time, when Bran is brought there by the Three-Eyed Raven, and we see the creation of what we believe is the Night King and the White Walkers, you know, it's summer, it's grassy, it's wonderful. Jump forward to when Bran goes on his vision quest by itself himself, excuse me, It's covered in snow. It's icy. Where in the world are we? And I mean that literally. I would take it from, you know, Brand's vision quest on his own that the actual location of this tree is north of the wall. And what that means, theoretically, if this is the same tree we saw thousands of years ago, that north of the wall wasn't always cold and could actually have green grass, for goodness sakes, and beautiful waterfalls, if you look at that shot. And so... The last book Martin has hinted will be named a dream of spring. And if the White Walkers and the Threat gets defeated, will we actually see the lands of always winter being the lands of seasonally winter? Otherwise it's like Alaska going summer, it's beautiful.
0: Ah. Totally I totally agree with you on that. Um it does seem and and again, uh before the creation of the White Walkers. And we've talked again about does the White Walker bring the cold or does the cold bring the White Walker? Um, maybe this is somewhat of an embedded clue as to how we should think about this because once he is created, maybe everything changes uh, a little more drastically. Um, I think, as you said, it, it's somewhere north of the wall. I would say it's even somewhere north of the tree where Bran and Three-Eyed Raven are. Um, and I think that we book readers sometimes refer to that as the the land of always winter, right? So um, perhaps it was not always a land of always winter. And perhaps, like you said, it will be a more seasonal place. So not only do we have this bit, which Bubba, you described, it's kind of White Walker History 101 – <laughs> um, one of the things it's that I love. It's the Cliff Notes version. It of. is the Cliff Notes version for sure. Uh, but one of the things that I loved about the way that that particular scene where Leaf was actually putting the, uh, the dragon glass into that man, into his chest, embedding it there, was the fact that you heard what we associate with as the night, as the white walker theme. Um, done very faintly, just as she's holding the dagger. So it, or the, uh, the dragon glass. So even if you don't know what's about to happen, you're getting a, a sonic clue as to what's about to happen. And that, to me, does confirm. Um, you, you kind of had postulated it. Perhaps this is the creation of the White Walkers. To me, that, that piece of music. Definitely confirms that it is the creation of the White Walkers. And I think visually with the blue eyes and all that, we can, we can come to that assumption in other ways. But I just love how Ramin made you start thinking about that before so that you didn't have to actually see a physical change of his skin changing color or everything icing over or what have you. You kind of already psychologically knew what was going to happen because you'd heard this since the very first cue of the whole series. That's a great point, um, you know, um, then the other thing that comes to my mind about this whole sequence that brand witnesses is how in a very meta sense, how man can often be the creation of his own demi- demise. Um, the children of the forest were forced to make this kind of nuclear bomb in order to defend themselves from man, and the whole idea of man creating his own demise that's definitely not any kind of original premise um but for me in this particular fantasy world it it was a new way of expressing that idea that made me feel um jarred by by just it's like oh wow okay so man is man no matter what fictional universe he's in uh he's he's the whole reason that the children of the forest did this thing that can destroy man uh, was because man was destroying them. So I, I hated that, uh just to remind me of what terrible people we human beings can be sometimes. Also, <laughs> the final uh battleground uh for the Children of the Force seems to be drawn here. As far as I can tell, and I can't recall any episode in the future where we see any more Children of the Force, this is the extinction of a race, is it not? so they also if if you take the children of
2: the forest as you know their another version of man, they created a weapon which got out of their control and then ended up killing them that's yeah. also uh you know we've got that in our history too, so yeah uh, absolutely absolutely great, great points and this is one thing I know we've talked about on other rewatch podcast Matt, and let's make sure holly can and jump in on this as well. is this a satisfactory answer? that the White Walkers and the Night King are really just kind of almost programmed robots. Programmed, you know, they're not... Uh, yes, they've got some personality, but it's not like they have some great backstory. Like a Cersei might have a backstory as a as a villain you want to defeat. The, the They are just, you know, kind of programmed to be evil, and will defeating them be rewarding enough to us as viewers? I personally think that if if they are defeated that will be rewarding enough certainly after they've given us so many great scares like at Hard Home and like in this episode um what do you guys think go ahead holly
1: um i'm thinking about the last podcast we did together hard home and you brought up the question of like what their motivation is and does it even matter and for me it pertaining to this question it i'm still curious i want to know so um, and I think if there is some sort of weird reason they are doing this, other than the fact that the children of the forest created them to do this, I'm still interested in what that what that is. Um, but maybe I'm just reading too much into it. And maybe there is no point in if you know, they are just robot weapons. And um, I don't, I'm not sure how I feel about that yet.
0: We'll see. That's interesting. I'd like to throw another tangent in that back to you, Bubba. And that is this seems to be something that you're exploring that probably won't be explained in this series. It seems to me that it's something that might be better explained in the prequel series that's planned. Do you foresee that being the same way? Based on the descriptions of the prequel series, you're absolutely right, Matt.
2: You know, if they're talking about how the Long Night came to be, well, certainly the Long Night, as far as we know, is died to the White Walkers. And so it's as almost as if, Okay, the first series shows you uh, how man deals with this supernatural problem. The next series shows you how the supernatural problem came to be and why it came to be. And so I personally agree with your thought process. I'm not expecting really any more insight into this history, even through a brand vision, which I believe would still be open to him. I think it's all kind of moving forward from this
0: point forward. I agree. I agree. Um I have one final bullet point on, on the whole tree, and that is uh, more, much more of a character thing. Um, if you've listened to episode three, I pointed out in that episode, in our review of Oathbreaker, that Bran, as much as we like to think of him as the innocent who is just doing what he's doing, he is a very flawed character. and And here... Be it by design of some kind of deterministic universe or just because of who he is, the fact that he's young, the fact that he is, uh, feels, you know, cheated by the fact that he can't walk anymore, that he can't be a knight like he originally wanted to be. Um, Bran has flaws and it causes a great deal of impatience in him. Um, we've seen him up to this point in the last four episodes, anytime he's been with the Three-Eyed Raven, challenged the Three-Eyed Raven's notions of, no, I want to see more. Yes, he heard my voice. All of these things. Bran is flawed, and isn't it very interesting to have such a powerful character be flawed with things like Mm -hmm. impatience to cause this kind of hurry up? Um, As I said, you know, you can look at this as a deterministic thing, this is exactly what uh, the three eyed Raven told him would happen, that he is going to leave. But now he is going to leave much faster than he was supposed to. But is that by design? There there's so many things that brand's flaws put into motion for this particular episode.
2: Well what I was gonna say, Matt, is I don't like you attacking kids.
0: Yeah. <sighs> yeah, I am a kid attacker. I apologize. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm
2: kidding but uh i didn't read it as as quite as tough on brand as as it really is in that I think we've all been in those places we all want to learn things we all kind of get impatient in all parts of our life, and I just think he, I think anybody can relate to that feeling, sorry,
0: oh yeah, I think it's totally relatable i'm not I'm not debating the relatableness of it, and I'm not really trying not to call brand um bad for doing this. I'm just saying that. We have to recognize him as more complex with his flaws than most people are giving him credit to. This isn't stuff that happens to him. This is stuff that he causes. That's all. Mm-hmm. That was my only point.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's completely, completely true.
0: Yeah. What his, else do we have his, on – oh, sorry, go ahead. I
1: was going to say, yeah, his disagree. his impatience definitely led to the events that essentially had to happen anyway um, and the timeline for everything to – for Hodor to become Hodor. So it's all, it's one of those things where he made a mistake, but yeah, I think you're right. It just, it still had to happen regardless.
0: Right. Right.
2: The past is already written. The ink is, is dry. dry. Yes. Yeah. Except that part about Hodor and your father hearing you at the Tower of Joy, but the rest is written.
1: I, I do wonder about that. If like, there's a moment, and I don't have this in the notes. So I'm just kind of off the cuff in this, but there is a moment where right before Hodor thing starts happening and he's telling him like he's hearing Mira and it looks like Willis turns and sees Bran but I'm not sure if that's me projecting my feelings but then like right after that is when the Hodor moment begins and I was wondering did he insert himself so much into that memory that he was seen by Hodor and then and then it happened or am I just imagining that or projecting that I'm not
0: sure.
2: Holly that's the way the scene reads I agree.
0: Yeah, okay. I and my interpretation is a little bit different. Um the fact that Bran is actually warged into Hodor in order to move him, because remember, Hodor was frozen um in place. Mm-hmm. And Mirror was like, Bran, you have to get Hodor moving. And that because Bran was simultaneously connected to present day Hodor while having a vision of past Hodor, to me, that's where the connection occurs, and so it may be possible that Willis thought he saw Bran, um, but I think it was just an actual kind of psychic connection that that happened because Bran was in connection with both past and present Hodor.
1: Okay. All right. That leads me to another question. I know we're not to questions yet, but just while we're on the topic, is yes. do you think? Do you think Bran is still working as Hodor the whole time he's holding the door? Or is there a point where, like, Hodor realizes he's at his at his fate and this is happening and he's the one holding the door and he's doing it because he knows he has to because of what happened to him back in time? Or do you think Bran is still working into him and holding that door until the moment that Hodor dies?
0: Bubba,
2: you- um- I- I did not think that, Holly. And part of this is a spillover because of the next episode. In the next episode, uh, spoiler alert, Mira is dragging Bran, and Bran is still kind of out of it. He is still having all this information downloaded into his brain. And so I would think as all-powerful as Bran might be and might be becoming, I don't think at this time he'd be able to – be warging in and controlling Holdor while also having, uh, you know, an information download like he's getting. So the next episode kind of colors my thoughts on those.
1: And I, I think I agree with you. And I prefer to think about it that way, because it just makes his sacrifice even more meaningful and impactful that he knew what he was doing. And he found the bravery because he, I guess maybe because he knew it was going to happen. I don't know. I just, it just makes me, more happy and sad for Hodor at the same time to think
0: about it. I, I, I think that that's, that's an excellent point because I think the thing that freezes up and this is just my interpretation, of course, it's pure speculation. Let me just qualify this. Um, but I think the whole reason that Hodor is so frozen with fear is because this is the beginning of his memory of what happened to him when he was young. Uh, the reason okay. why he won't move, he is unwilling to to get up and go because he's starting, you know, his his memory of where he couldn't communicate with, you know, with the rest of the world begins at the moment that Brand enters his head to warg him. So however long he stays, Brand stays with him as he's holding the door, um, doesn't matter. I think there's a couple of distinctive shots of Hodor at the end where he's still holding the door, but his eyes are not glazed over he doesn't look like he's being controlled by anything um so i i agree with your premise um that you know it it constitutes that much more bravery for hodor um uh, but at that point he doesn't really have a choice anymore does he because he's already remembering everything that was injected into his brain when he was younger
1: you're right i and yes wibbly wobbly timey whiny. wibbly wobbly timey whiny. <laughs> it
0: definitely definitely is um we've spent a lot of time on the tree what other big things do we have uh how about you bubba
2: well i have one apologies it is tied a bit to the attack at the end of the show and even though i really like this episode there's certain parts of it that at least don't work for me and game of thrones gives us so much great action let's look at two of the action pieces in this show one, as I've already mentioned, is that incredible attack at the end, which I, I just love beyond belief. It makes this episode a classic with a with an incredible, depressing, amazing, heartbreaking ending. But there's another big action scene, or tries to be, and that is this kind of montage of Arya versus the Waif, which doesn't really connect with me at all as a, as a bit of action, a bit of violence anyway. Matt, one thing that I made a note of is that, the diff, one of the differences is there's no music in that first fight between Arya and the wave. And it maybe because of that, the whole entire beatdown that Arya suffers kind of left me cold. I don't know if you guys felt that way, but that was one of my three big things.
1: Hmm. I, I think I've been in my tidbits, but um, one of the things I noticed watching that fight was Arya learns a lot from uh, the waif and her like kind of defensive evasive moves and how she's dodging her, especially after she drops that weapon. Um, that was really familiar to me watching it this time because she uses those same evasive moves when she's fighting Brienne in season seven. So I kind of like was looking at it from that angle, like, Oh, look at what all the stuff she's learned since, since now.
2: No, that's a good point. That certainly, it certainly pays off even
0: at the end of this season.
1: Yeah,
0: Absolutely. I have no additional thoughts on that, actually. So,
2: Well, all right, Matt, because you're such an expert. Why would a director slash composer, why would they want a scene to have
0: no musical score? Well, one of the things is it, it impacts the conflict between the characters. You don't need music to get in the way of good acting. You also don't need good acting to get in the way of good music <laughs> but uh uh the or bad acting to get in the way of good music i I honestly feel like that this was a moment where the the especially the way that the the soundscape was organized you think about the sound effects of the poles hitting, and then as uh it's it almost seems like a climactic timpani crash when the waif just drops her pole, right? And then you have you still have the soundscape of her defending herself against Arya without any of the of the poles happening. That is music in itself. That is its own kind of score. And while Ramin could have done something very John Williams-esque and put this whole f- thing with the Faceless Man theme kind of going underneath with these little hits going with each swing of the stick or what have you. Um I think there's more drama and this is something that is, is very elusive to many film scores and directors. Sometimes it's just better to not have a score than to try and throw on top of what a good sound design can create.
2: I think that can be true, but I will say, I think a score might've helped me connect with the scene that I didn't connect with in this otherwise very good episode. So,
0: Okay. Good point. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. I did connect with it. I connected with it deeply. Okay. So um, I was just um, there. There was a there was a rhythm to the fighting itself, um, not just a visual rhythm, but also an oral rhythm in in the soundscape for me. Um, but on the other hand, I'm kind of nerdy that way, so that's probably what it was. Uh, what else do we have on the three big things, Holly? Do you have another one?
1: This will probably be my last point about the whole Hodor stuff in general but it's going back to summer it's my obligatory uh direwolf um comments um she's the only one to have the only direwolf to have a hero's death of all the direwolves so far so um in season one we had lady who was executed by ned uh season three gray wind was executed inside of a kennel by phrase and this season uh we don't really know what happened to shaggy dog but i think if (laughs) shaggy dog would have taken out somebody we would have heard umber like complain about it you know like while talking to ramsey and we really don't even know how rick and and shaggy dog and osha even got there or what you know how if they were like treated as guests for a while and then just kind of like okay you're not going anywhere or if they were like prisoners the whole time they were there but i'm just gonna guess that in this case he wasn't because he was decapitated so as far as we know Summer's the only dire wolf to go out fighting, even as hard as it is to watch and terrible. Um, I'm glad that she went out fighting. And now knowing where Bran is in the future, I'm kind of glad she's not around because it'd be (laughs) really sad. Because she wouldn't like she would have lost her connection to Bran if Bran is like the three eyed raven now. Like really, what use does he have for her? He really doesn't have much use for her. And it kind of makes me sad. She'd be like a neglected pet.
2: <laughs> but how about this, Holly? If Summer had somehow survived, would that have allowed Brand to not be robotic, three-eyed raven Brand?
1: Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about it from that angle. And
2: Well, no, but, you made me think of it from that angle. I'm like, she, oh, okay.
1: Actually, no. And this is kind of, Matt, you were saying earlier, you thought Bran is the way he is now because he spent too much time. I always interpreted Bran being kind of robotic as he has just seen so many memories of so many lifetimes that it's how could he even begin to remember who he was and how to be a human anymore. Um, so it's not that he made that mistake by dwelling too long in some memories. It's just that he has way too much going on inside of his head to even begin to be a human anymore.
0: Well, um, I, I kind of almost Holly, I almost kind of think that we're saying the exact same thing just in different ways.
1: Okay, maybe so. um,
0: uh, It's just that, I mean, I wasn't saying, well, okay, it takes x amount of time for brand to lose himself. I'm just saying that uh it the the three eyed raven told him that if if you invest yourself too deeply in any one moment and now he's got billions of moments that he has to invest deeply in as he's doing this very intense download, uh, which you know I'm not saying that uh i I guess maybe i i kind of misspoken in, in saying that that one particular moment was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, it was all of the moments, but he might have been able to pull himself back a little bit if he hadn't continued to persist. Is is he's, def- be-
1: he's definitely changed after he the R plus L equals J reveal. Like After he sees that, then after that, he's definitely a different brand. But yeah. Sorry. yeah. No,
2: that's right, Holly. I was just going to say that when he does see baby John being handed from John's mother to his, to Ned brand's face does show an awful lot of emotion then. So, uh, the showrunners hadn't told brand, uh, yeah, by this point, you're
0: a robot when they were filming season six. Mm -hmm. Very true. Very true. Um, love all of that discussion. Uh, what else do we have? I, I I guess I'll go with this one because for me, this is a big thing. uh, (laughs) Back to the whole Arya thing, and and you all know about my crazy crackpot thing that I have about Jockin actually gave Arya exactly what he promised her in Season 2, and I know that uh, many of my listeners don't agree with me, but I feel like that this episode is where I gathered most of my evidence for this. Um, when the Waif and Arya are fighting, she tells Arya, you should go home before it's too late. And this is exactly what Arya in the end does. She admits to Jockin that she is still Arya Stark of Winterfell. Um, and the whole idea here is that she has learned the skills of being no one before actually having to become no one. And this is more or less what Jockin exactly promised in the season two finale. I will give you the skills to complete your list. Completing your list means you do not give up your identity. It means that you are still Arya Stark. Um, also, you'll never be one of us, Lady Stark. And then jockin says she has a point. And again, jockin is saying exactly what he promised her in season two. A girl has been given a second chance, jockin says to her. There will not be a third. One way or another, a face will be added to the hall. And to me, this is Jockin's kind of loophole for Arya to be able to still be her and still gain the skills that she needs that he promised her in season two. And then uh when talking about uh the actress, Arya says, you know, she's quite skilled, and, and Jockin says, a man has heard. And this points to me that Jockin made sure to give her this specific assignment because of the play, that will not only just test her, but it will also give Arya an out in case she reconnects with herself. Um, If she reconnects with who she is. Now he has established that the only payment for doing this is merely a face. doesn't matter whether it's her face, or whether it's the face of the actress, or whether it's the face of the waif. All he needs is the payment of a face, Just like back in season two when he asked Arya for three names because she had spared three lives that what he called at the time, because he was still acting like he was from Lys, he called the Red God, he was actually meaning the many-faced God. He's saying here that, um, you know, a price must be paid for whatever outcome happens. And uh a girl must decide if she wants to serve the many-faced God, and a servant doesn't ask questions. He's giving all of these qualifiers to Arya, um, and it will become where he's not demanding that she become a faceless man. He's just qualifying what must happen in order for her to give her the promise that she had in, that he gave her in season two. To me, this episode is a big culmination of a simple phrase in Valor Mogullis, the last episode of season two. Uh, everything that he promised her there in a simple little phrase uh, has been outlined over and over throughout many episodes. But this one is the one where it's repeated over and over and over thematically. And I know that my interpretation uh, may seem a little weird and a little vague, uh, but this is my story and I'm sticking to it.
2: Matt, it doesn't seem a little weird. It doesn't seem a little vague. It seems very weird and very vague. So thank you for for pointing that out. No, I like it, Matt. I like somebody defending bad teachers, like Chuck and Agar. So good. You're right. That's what he promised in season two, and he fulfilled. Contract delivered. (laughs) Cha-ching.
0: (laughs) Cha-ching. All right. After that tangent, I'm sure somebody else has a, a better big thing for me.
2: No, it's not any better, but I want to go to one of my big things. And that is the last time I was on was sure enough at Hard Home. And I mentioned how there was an awful lot of similarity between Hard Home and between the loot train battle in season seven. Yes. And one of the things I talked about why I happen to really like both of those battles, and I guess I like Hard Home better, maybe because it's the first one of the two type of battles that I uh-huh. saw, is that the battles had an element of surprise to them. So in season two, we saw the Battle of the Blackwater, but there wasn't so much surprise in it, in that both sides knew, okay, the enemy's coming, or Stannis' fleet knew, okay, we're going to attack the enemy. There wasn't that surprise there. There wasn't that surprise in the Battle of the Bastards, because both sides agreed, okay, we're going to fight tomorrow morning. There wasn't that surprise in the attack on the wall other than the, I mean there was a little bit of surprise but the night's watch knew the wildlings were going to attack the wildlings knew okay we're going to attack and so in both battle uh, excuse me the battle at hardhome and the battle of the loot train one side doesn't know this attack is coming and sure enough in this episode the infamous attack of the night king's army of the dead and his uh, fellow buddies the white walkers the show does a great job of telling us, okay, he marked you, he can get in the cave, it's coming. But it kind of does a real deft touch, at least it did for me as a viewer the first time, before letting you know, okay, you know how he touched you when it's bad? Well, it's going to happen later tonight, (laughs) you know, theoretically, or however long this uh, period was. And so when we have one side doesn't know it's coming, and when, you know, Mira sees her breath, You know, that's a bit of the infamous back at Hardhome, the dogs barking. Wait a minute. Something's wrong here. Mira sees, you know, she's in the cave with Hodor. She's talking about, oh, we're going to get to eat something other than roots. Oh, it'll be so great. And she sees her breath and Hodor sees his breath. You know, once again, it's like the dogs barking in Hardhome. It's like Bron hearing those, you know, the Dothraki horses in the distance. There's always this like, okay, wait a minute. What's going on? And I think, it, it for me, it just makes these battles so wonderful. Now, of course, one thing between all three is they're all just wipeouts. There's no real fight in any of these. Yes, the heroes get little victories. Mira kills a White Walker. Let's give her 100% credit for that. But this is a, this is a slaughter, just like Hardhome was a slaughter and a loss, just like the Loot Train battle was a slaughter and loss. And so I'm just talking a, a big point. The show does these very well. I tend to enjoy them. Looking forward, is there any way season eight is going to have another surprise attack? I would say probably it's going to be tough to surprise because with Bran being all-seeing and all-knowing, he would have, he would hope he's going to know, okay, the wall went down. We got some trouble. They got a, a zombie dragon with them. But uh, once again, I love this style. I love that shock. The first time seeing it, the fact like, oh, crap, this is happening now, tonight, Uh, I loved it. And and even though I kind of some of the, you know, next week on Game of Thrones kind of revealed that it probably would happen in this episode, I had forgotten about it. And so the surprise of, oh, crap, it's coming. And then, oh, crap, it's this bad. Oh, crap, we're all dead. Really, really works great. And um, so I love that even battles can have shocking twists. When people talk about Game of Thrones, they always talk about the shocking twists, the red wedding, Ned losing his head, those kind of shocking twists. But when a battle comes as a shock to the characters, I love it, and uh, that's one of the reasons why I believe this episode is so powerful, and I love it as much as I do. You know, it's top 10 for me in Game of Thrones moments.
0: So to summarize, you're a big fan of the subtle harbinger, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I, I think it works. Yeah, I do, too. I do, too. I absolutely agree. Holly, any thoughts on that? Uh, No, that was
1: just great. Again, brilliant.
0: Yeah, you're way too smart for the rest of us, Bubba. Just get off the podcast now. No, okay, don't. Well, he, don't he, no, he, no, he, do not. Do not another get another off the podcast. Uh, go for it.
2: And that is my third big thing, my three big things, was Bran has all this power, and he got all this power. And in season seven, and in admittedly at the end of this season, season six, he's using it, his power for kind of like, okay, let me tell you about these things that happened in the past. And for season seven a bit, we saw him do some reconnaissance to see like, okay, where is the Night King and his army now when Bran got into those uh, ravens and flew north of the wall? So something I don't know, something I don't think I can be smart about is Bran went through this incredible journey for a reason. And I believe he's going to have a big part to play in these final battles. Admittedly, I can't come up with what the big part would be other than him possibly warging into a dragon, maybe even the Night King's own dragon. But I was wondering if you guys, if any of the listeners, have great ideas for where Bran, now who has an awful lot of power, what he's going to be doing
0: in season eight. I'd love to hear it. Ooh. It's been hard for me to see Bran's role since the last episode of this season to be anything other than... T- the deliverer of the message about the true, uh, validity of Jon Snow. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I agree, he should, given that amount of power, have a great deal of effect on, on the, the wars to come, so to speak, as we keep saying these, this, that phrase over and over throughout this whole series. But I don't know what exactly it would be. Holly, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Not any definitive thoughts but um I do like the idea of brand possibly warging a dragon. I wonder if his powers could extend to even warging an undead dragon and maybe using um uh, undead Viseryn against the Night King. I don't know how possible that is but Let's
2: know. do it. Come on,
0: it'll be fun.
1: Yeah, totally. Um
0: <laughs> Well, it's very yeah. interesting because it doesn't seem like at least small fires we as we see evidence in this episode the small fires don't seem to affect the White Walkers at all. Even the White Walker that came through uh, the meeting place at Hardhome didn't seem affected all right. that much had by the fire. They have the
2: ability to kind of put out the fire around them. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if a dragon were to unleash, you know, like say Dro- Drogon unleashed a fire blast at the Night King, would he ever even feel it? I think that's a great question. And I think the show would make us believe he wouldn't. He'd be able to stop that
0: in its tracks. On the other hand... Oh, I'm that. sorry. Go ahead, Holly.
1: No, I, was saying, I don't think I agree with that, because if if a Valyrian steel, which is made from... Is it not made from Dragonfire? Or, or... Well,
2: you're bringing up a great point, Holly. That especially some book knowledge is that uh, Dragonfire and the Valyrians, who uh, kind of tamed the dragons way back when, certainly helped create Valerian steel. I don't know I don't know if we know enough to know if be, the one thing that the show makes me question is way back at the beginning of season 4 the episode Two Swords. Mm. Tywin was able to reshape, reshape uh, Ned Stark's sword Ice into two different swords and he certainly didn't have dragon fire to do it. So
1: good point, but the the steel was forged in the first place by, you know, special good me- point dragon you know fire and if dragon steel and dragon glass can take out white walkers i assume dragon fire can as well
2: um, all right well i'd love to see it let's do this yeah
0: <laughs> okay yeah we, we, we're gonna have to see this is gonna be this is why season eight is gonna be so much fun because those kinds of questions will will definitely in the course of the of the battles that we're sure to see will have to be defined one way or the other um so we can draw better assumptions about the power of th- the dragons themselves versus anything that the dragons may have had uh, a part of making um and dragon glass is nothing more than obsidian which is volcanic glass right and it's kind of a volcanic crystal um which would make sense why it would be so plentiful on dragonstone because dragonstone is an island probably a vol- formerly a volcanic island Um, so what, what is it that constitutes what man calls dragon glass or what man calls dragon steel versus its actual power in relation to actual dragons? I thank God we have all of that in the show so that we can figure it out as we go along.
2: (laughs) Gilly, read those books and then tell (laughs) Sam what the answer is.
0: Yes, exactly. We need Gilly to guide Sam to the answer. Yes. Holly do you have a, a another big thing i I do, but
1: it's really not very big compared to all the other things <laughs> we've been discussing, but John leaves the wall in this episode and it's the first time he's leaving the wall not as a man of the nights watch and that's just I know he kind of says his watch has ended you know in previous episodes, but he's actually leaving now and moving on and um and it's just It's a really small moment in this episode, but it's huge going forward because we know he's just in the near future going to become king in the north. And uh, and then we're going to find out his true parentage and his legitimacy being born of those parents and what his position actually is in the world. And um, it's just it's just a big deal. And I, I just I just appreciated that moment. And also him giving Ed the wall and Ed only has like. 56 Knights Watchmen, so watch over whatever. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, um, it's going to grow.
2: Well, there was no vote. Does Ed officially become the 999th Lord Commander? Like, there was no vote, or was this a coup to Ed?
1: It, it was a coup to Ed, but I really think everybody's just tired, and they don't really <laughs> anymore, and there's bigger problems than making sure whoever is the new Lord Commander of the Night's Watch was... Chosen in the most democratic way or
0: not, and and to you know abandon my straight man philosophy uh, just to say that the biggest thing about this is that Ed is in charge. That regardless of who John was or who John will be or whatever, Ed's in charge. Dollar Ed is in charge of all of this. I mean, that is huge. We're how, how can it possibly? We're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just surrender to the night's gang. We're done. Exactly. It, it's over. It, well, it, here's the funny thing. Because of where the forces of the Army of the Dead breached the wall, I mean, Ed can man the wall for the rest of his life, and he probably won't even see any action.
2: Right. The final scene of season eight of Game of Thrones entirely is somebody coming back up to the wall, and Ed's like, yeah, I, I protected the wall. They didn't get through. What, you didn't hear? Oh, they did? Oh. Oh. Nobody's in a raven. Oh, ravens died from the dragons. Okay. Um, uh, Am I still getting paid?
0: (laughs) Very good. I do have one final big thing, too. And I know it's not a very popular uh, point to make as a big thing, perhaps, amongst our listeners. Maybe it is. Uh, But to me, the king's mood itself is very big. Uh, And again, to abandon my straight man thing and, and to go with a total, uh, tongue in cheek thing. It's the turning of the tide, right? For the Iron Man. Um, I loved <laughs> Theon speaking. Yeah, I know. Wow. He actually went there. Uh, Theon speaking bravely for Yara. This is the first time. I mean, yeah. Theon's whole journey through season six is amazing. The fact that he starts at the end of season five and he helps Sansa get away. Then, he has the courage to go back to the Iron Islands and face Yara's wrath. Then he speaks for her in the way that he does here at this King's Moot. Um, and uh, I, Holly, I think I saw somewhere in one of your points in regards to that, so I'll yield to you here in a second. But here's, here's the thing that got me so much, was the exchange of ideas. Because it does affect the series, greatly going forward. And this is why I put it in my three big things. Euron steals Yara's idea of building the biggest fleet in the world. A thousand ships or however many ships you need to be the biggest fleet in the world. At the same time, Yara takes the ships that Euron has and steals his idea about Daenerys. Because he says, I'm going to get the Daenerys chick and we're going to take over all of Westeros. Uh, and Yara beats him to the punch by taking off with his ships. I love the whole idea of how this plays forward. And we've yet to see, you know, Euron has captured Yara and we've yet to see how that's to play out and whether Theon in a total redemption of his character can save his sister or in just a Game of Thrones and George R. R. Martin way will fail in the attempt. Um, We've yet to see how that will play out, of course. But it, it's a critical point to me that both of these guys fed ideas to each other. And once Euron was out on the possibility of being with Daenerys, well, he chose the other side. Because if you got Cersei, who's already ruling Westeros, well, hey, I'm the ruler of Westeros.
2: You know what, Matt? That's a great point. Now, I want to go to my big point. And that is, Euron steals Yara's idea, she steals his. And so, in honor of that, I'll steal your big, three big thing and say that's my point now, too.
0: <laughs>
2: and we'll see how successful it goes.
0: This is what I get for not playing the straight guy all of the time.
2: Do <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you do, do you wish our... Current politicians would do that, to be like, I'm going to build a wall. No, no, you're not, because I'm also going to build a wall. You know what (laughs) I'm going to do? I'm going to make them pay for it. Oh, no, they won't pay for it because they're going to pay for it. It certainly make the debates more interesting if everybody just ripped off everybody else's ideas. Yeah,
0: if they disagreed to agree, that would be fantastic. (laughs) Right,
2: exactly. (laughs) Did did none of the ironborn say, it's so tough to choose? Should I choose the one who wants to build the biggest – uh, is she navy in the world or the one who wants to chop down every trees and build the biggest no. navy in the world
0: I, I do find it interesting that they need was, a third party candidate I definitely find it interesting that Euron said I paid the iron price meaning oh, yeah. that he killed Balon uh, to, get the, to get the throne uh, and how that was so quickly endorsed from just a smattering to a all and out out and out chant and how Theon and Yara both realized, oh, we're doomed. Because that's the philosophy of a whole group of people. That kind of mentality is a comment on society all by itself.
2: Yeah, they both realized at the same time, boy, a lot of people hated dad. Huh, Okay, mm-hmm. let's get out of here. Yeah, I, out of when here. I saw it the first time, I was like, when this guy admits he kills your father, Yara, you don't want to say, okay, well, I'm going to kill you right now. I mean, she kind of took it as well as anybody good. I mean, yeesh.
0: Yeah, um, she did. I guess she did threaten to uh, have him executed for it if she's elected queen. This just goes to show Yara's respect for the power (laughs) of the position. Yes, that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. No, No, I don't know.
2: Yeah, should we say, should we make a very politically incorrect joke about how the qualified woman is not voted into office, but instead the big blowhard is? Or should Ooh. we just ignore that little symbolism right there?
1: No, we should not, because that's what I have like written in my handwritten notes. I'm like, Yara claims first, the men don't like it, typical. Like That's, that's literally what it wrote, and it's, just, it's very reminiscent of the 2016 election and how a lot of people view Hillary Clinton, unfortunately, just because she's a woman or whatever. Um, but I, we don't have to go too deep into that. It's just, yeah, that's not... It was not
0: unnoticed. He's going to build a huge fleet. I, I've never known Dave and Dan to be that subtle. Do you really think, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, they're going right, to That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, anyway, do we have anything else on three big things? Have we exhausted all of our, have we actually listed nine things now? <laughs> I think we have. All yes. right. Well, there might still be some questions. Questions. Let me get to my
2: questions, Matt, since we were just talking about the King's Moot. Sure. The two questions I had was, I found it very interesting that when the Euron original idea comes up of, hey, I'm going to sail over to somebody who hates the Lords of Westeros almost as much as we did. I'm going to team up with Daenerys, who's got these dragons. It's interesting, at least to me, that everybody at this King's Moot seems to have heard of this. You know, this is is everybody getting a raven? Daenerys's reign and return and the return of dragons to the world has even filtered down to the low-educated voters on the Iron Islands. And so I thought that was very interesting, and I was wondering uh, how these rumors got around. Another question I had specifically about the King's moot is, is that the show is trying to do... Once again, I'm always talking about the process. The show is trying to do a switcheroo. So it's trying to make the audience think, okay... This is a scene where somebody said, why are you, Yara, trying to do this when Balon's male heir is still right here? And it's trying to make us think, "Okay, no, this is a big, emotional, brilliant point of where Theon's going to grow and he's going to step out of, you know, step out of his weakness and help get his sister elected. And then it's a switcheroo of, hold on, wait a minute. There's somebody else here who wants the, what is it, the salt Throne on the show? I may have missed that. And so I was wondering, was I the only one? And admittedly, I have complete book knowledge, so maybe I can't even trust my own opinion. But was I the only one who didn't feel the good kind of switcheroo, didn't feel like the switcheroo they were trying to set up and pull off really worked? It never felt to me like maybe once again, I go back to the score, maybe they should have, and they did add a little bit, maybe they should have added more kind of triumphant music to everybody yelling, Yara, Yara, and almost like a... She had the camera down low and shooting up at her, give her, you know, the complete hero shot to make make us as an audience think, OK, this is great. You are leader before it pulled the rug out from under us. I don't know if anybody else felt that way, but that was one of my questions about uh, how could they have pulled the switcheroo better in for a viewer named Bubba at Fit and Trim.
0: All right. On. Well, uh, I will yield any answering to you, uh, Holly first.
1: I don't really have an answer to your second question, but your first question, I think even Joffrey before he dies has heard of Daenerys and the dragons and, and Tywin like confirms with them. Yeah, that it's true. And thinking about Greyjoys and people from there and islands are people who are on boats. So they probably met a lot of traders who keep, they keep hearing the same story over and over again. So it wouldn't be, it's not that surprising to me that they would have heard of Daenerys.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I think that's a good good answer. Well, and my answer to that first point, uh, to that first question, actually, I didn't feel like that they were actually informed until Euron informed them of it. Okay. Um, that that was the impression that I got at that time, that he just made a case and it, it could have been complete BS as far as these guys knew, but they were like, okay, yeah, this guy's been gallivanting around. So maybe he knows something that we don't. And so they just took his word for it. Mm. But that was just my impression. To endorse it wholeheartedly uh, was a very uh, television show. Let's get this thing over quickly.
2: Yeah, yeah I, let's move along. Move along.
0: I do appreciate your point about that. As far as the switcheroo thing, um, I obviously, having been a book reader, uh, expected – Yara to be challenged. Um, so I, I was not as affected by that as maybe TV only people were. I agree with you there. Um, I do feel like that that shouldn't take away anything from the impact that I felt of Theon just finding the courage to say anything at that point. I think to me that was the, uh, was the real moment there because we all knew that once Euron appeared that it was over for Yara and Theon as book readers. We knew this because we had read that in book four. Uh but at the same time, um I did I did feel the emotional impact of it uh as opposed to you, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, I guess I would agree with with Matt and I'm I'm using up all my tidbits here, but um I'm, Theon didn't after all the torture and everything he went through and all the parts of himself that he lost, he did not lose his ability to make a great speech. And yeah. <laughs> he's very he's very moving in that speech and, and like until Euron comes along and we know he has that great moment at Winterfell too, when he's trying to rally the Iron Islanders against the Boltons that are outside the gates. And then we know he's going to have another one coming at the end of season seven, after he gets the crap kicked out of him. Uh, And he's still going to like get everybody riled up and ready to go save um, Yara. And um, so it's just, it's kind of nice to see that in this moment where he had been so broken up until now, uh, he's kind of coming out strong and speaking strongly for her and very impassioned still. I was happy to see that. I think, I think Alfie Allen is too often overshadowed by everything else happening in the show, but his performance has been really good these past few seasons.
0: Very good. Yeah. I have a question. Let's hear it. My question uh, is in regards to varies. And I know that um, I'm going to continue to use up Holly's tidbit points (laughs) because I'm pretty sure she's going to have a response uh, pertaining to her tidbit in my question here. But uh, the quote is from the high priestess from Valantis. Should I tell you what the voice said? Should I tell you the name of the one who spoke? Now, is there any reason that we should think that we're going to get a definitive answer to these questions in season eight is my question. I'm not asking you to answer the question itself. Just do you think the showrunners have no choice now that they've boxed us in or do they have, I mean, because we have what? We're expecting close to 90 minutes an episode, according to everything that we've heard. Um, so that's, what, nine hours of television. Surely they have, you know, five minutes to answer this particular question, right?
1: Mm, okay, I'm inclined to say yes, just with all the red priests building up they've been doing this season alone i've I've kind of noticed that they've had a lot of that kind of happening and especially in this particular episode and you know making a point of mel saying she's you know going back to volantis and she's going to come back to westeros like what's she going to bring with her is she going to bring a bunch of um more like more red priests with her or priestesses with her when she comes back um so i don't know i kind of hope we get an answer to this question
2: matt i'm going to go even farther I'm going to say if you read behind-the-scenes interviews, Dave and Dan, the showrunners of Game of Thrones, talked to the creator of this series, George R. R. Martin, to kind of plan for the end. And according to them, George Martin told them kind of three things that made them go, oh, snap, holy smokes, whoa, that kind of blew their mind. One was at the end of season five and the burning of Shireen Baratheon. The second thing was apparently in this episode, the right. incredible reveal of Hodor. And for whatever reason, I've always thought that the third thing, I'm like, what would be the third kind of thing, twist, that would shock them? And to me, it is, we're going to find out what it said, and it's going to be a holy smokes, you know, r- reveal. And so if I had to guess, it's, it's that question you're asking. Good. Who, who said you know, what voice said what when they burned Vary's manhood all those years ago? And uh, I, I can't imagine what that could be to shock me so big. But if, say, you know, they threw it on the fire and it suddenly said, you will be gang or, you know, something like that. That would be a, like a holy smokes. Wah-ha. So it'll be nice to it'll be. That's my own. That's my call in my shot. It might be a long shot, but it's one that I always have kind of felt.
0: Very good. Let me put, uh, uh let me dig in the hole a little deeper. Um, do you think that what Varys heard in the fire has anything to do with his conversation with Melisandra at the beginning of season seven?
2: Mm, why, the only thing I can really recall about that conversation is that Melisandre drops a truth bomb on him that he's going to die there. And so will she, a.k.a. they're not going to survive season eight if you trust uh, melisandre's visions which i i tend to so uh was there something else that we should be thinking of there matt
0: well no that's exactly it i just wonder if what was in the voice might have something pertaining to his death okay all right i'll see it you know it just as a pure speculation what else do we have in the way of questions guys
2: i'll go ahead and throw my last question out and that is is that neither the show nor the text of these books have seemingly, to my mind, explained exactly how you get a contract with a faceless man to go kill somebody. So here, uh, you know, the lovely actress who's playing Sansa in the play has theoretically hooked up with the faceless men to get them to kill Lady Crane. But we don't know how. What did she pay? How did she convince them? Do the faceless men really just take anybody? Oh, okay. you want the lead part? Sure. Uh, And I know the book hints at it's always a high cost and the cost is relative to, you know, it's kind of like a cost that costs you pretty much the thing that, you know, would hurt you the most. But still, I I hope somebody sooner or later answers, you know, how this works, (laughs) because it seems very mysterious. Like if if I'm an understudy or a a bit player and I want to just kill the lead and that suddenly is going to make me the lead. Well, you know, what can I pay? What have I got? I'm a, I'm a working actor here. I'm work, bussing tables to make ends meet. I got to run to auditions all over Bravo's. To, you know, what, what do you want from me, faceless man? And so yeah. I want to know. Listeners, find me on Twitter. Once again, my name is Bubba. I'm at Fit and Trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. At Fit and Trim on Twitter. I'm the host and kind of one of the guys at Double P Media, at Double HQ. Tell me what it's going to cost me to kill these people in my way. <laughs> I love it. Why does Tom Cruise keep getting to make Mission Impossibles? When is Bubba's turn? Tell me what I'm gonna have to pay the faceless <laughs> men so I can make this happen.
0: <laughs> oh you know, and, and this is this is a rabbit hole that we could go down uh exploring different episodes for a long time. You have uh the man coming to Aria in terms of his daughter Gita, mm-hmm. who says she needs to pay. What is the price that is paid there? Well it's Gita's life. Well, this man is going to have to part with his daughter. He's doing it for the good. And he even says it will almost be a relief, but he does say it will almost be a relief. Um, what did this actress who is playing Sansa? What did she contract to be, uh, this?
2: I should say the character's name is Bianca. I want to give her her due.
0: Bianca. All right. Let's give her credit. Um, what I, what I love most about this is just, the similarity of making the deal with a devil. Uh, how how many Robert Johnsons have come to the Faceless Men?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted I wanted to see that. I think for me, seeing that might have made this Bravo's storyline feel a bit better because okay. I know some people, and I feel a bit this way too. Feels like it it doesn't really end as so much; it just stops, and Ari's like later losers. Hmm.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough.
1: Holly, any thoughts? It is a little disappointing. It seems like the faceless men have a, um, um, I don't know, maybe some integrity with people they kill, if it makes sense. And so just having somebody, you know, wanting to, hiring the faceless men to kill someone out of something that's like envy just doesn't really sit well with me. But if they're paying the price, then I guess, what does it matter? I don't know.
0: Right. (laughs) Holly, do you have a question?
1: You remember when we thought when the Night King did the bad touch to Bran that um, it was going to mean something so much more than him just being able to get into the tree? Like we thought it was going to be, this is how he's going to get through the wall. And um, it's not really a question because we kind of have the answer where it really doesn't mean anything. I just kind of wanted to recall that time where we spent a lot of time talking about what that touch meant. And we thought it maybe meant a lot more than it actually did.
0: Hmm. Interesting because I didn't, I never really actually interpreted it that way. I didn't feel like even with Viserion that the Night King could have broken the magic that Benjen or whoever spoke of or Sam even in the wall without Bran having passed through it after having been touched. I still see it as a, as a valid point, but uh obviously you do not. And uh, so I have no answer for you. Bubba, what do you think?
2: I think Holly's right. I debated this an awful lot, too. Like, oh, no, Bran, you've screwed up so much. What if you go through the wall now that you've been Bran-did? Yeah. I, mean, uh. I mean, I'm here all podcast, folks. Try the meatloaf. So anyway, the the reality is is that the Bran and the Night King do keep kind of having these meat cutes. I mean, Bran is warged into a flock of ravens. The Night King sees it, and he's just like, oh, no, you didn't, and snaps Bran out of it. So maybe the Night King does have some power still. I mean, there's no way to tell, but I hope the show does revisit it, Holly. So I I may not have a definitive answer for you, but at the very least, Bran should, you know, roll up his sleeve and go, look at this great tat I got. Good point.
1: I guess I didn't interpret the – when the Night King sees like the the murder of crows, if you will, um, as – that being a connection there, but no, I didn't either. I, I'm just spitballing. No, I, I like that though, and it makes it would make sense. And um, they do seem to have I mean, brand they have similar powers because if brands' powers are kind of similar to what the children of the forest have, then you know that means that the Night King has similar powers since they were created by children of the forest. So I don't know, interesting,
0: yeah. Uh, all. Good stuff. And I don't have an answer for any of that, but I, obviously my interpretation was completely different. So I, I don't know that I have a, a valid voice from which to speak from uh, in terms of your question, but staying on brand. Um, and I keep bringing this up. I, I will have brought this up in episode three as well, the discussion there. Um, and this comes from episode three where the three eyed raven tells brand, uh, as Bubba quoted earlier, the ink is dry. Does that mean that we are looking at a deterministic universe? Um, And this is anybody's guess, really. I feel like there's some evidence to point towards that simply with this particular episode in the fact that Bran causes Hold the Door to become Hodor in a way. Um, It's something that had always been there. And I'm not an expert on time travel or causal loops or what have you. But as long as we're as long as we're saying, well, did Ned hear the voice or did he not hear the voice? Well then the question has to become did Ned always hear the voice, regardless of whether Brand knew that it was going to be or not? And does that make it a deterministic universe as opposed to one where free will uh chooses the direction of the universe? And what does that mean for the future? We've seen Danny have the same vision of the Iron Throne. In her House of the Undying episode, as we did when Bran in season four grabbed the tree for the first time, one would think that this is from the future. Does that point towards a deterministic universe because two different people in two different circumstances have seen the same thing?
2: Yep. I, I believe it does, Matt. Okay. I, I'm not saying we won't see one more instance of something in the something in the present, for lack of the show's present, affecting something in the past. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see another one, but it'll it'll always be. I I I, I we used to have this debate on our book read podcast, Matt, mm-hmm. of, where I was saying Brad Brand could change the past, and I feel like the show has proven that he has, and he did. But if Brand could change the past, it seems like whatever past he changes it to doesn't change the present. It's,
0: as you're saying, deterministic. Okay. Holly, do you have any thought on that? Wibbly wobbly. <laughs> ah, there you go. Wibbly wobbly. Tommy White. And, and I want to
2: call out those people in the Book Read podcast who said, no, Bubba, you're wrong. Brand can't choose the past. And I'll just say this word to you. Hold the damn door. Mm. Oh,
0: dang. Zing. Zam. Wow. What other questions do we have? Anything?
1: So kind of going back to Arya and uh, part of one of your points, Matt, was um, he says to her, the wave says Lady Stark, and he says, she has a point. And that just had me thinking like, okay, yeah, this is probably not very common for people that are highborn to try to become faceless men. So I was wondering if Arya was possibly the first highborn person or at least highborn person from Westeros to attempt to become a faceless man. And I don't know, it's, it's a question. There's not really an answer to, I was just an interesting thought. And that's not really where they come from. And it's, you know, a highborn person probably would not seek out that life unless having suffered many, many traumas like Aria has. So I don't know. It was just a, a question I thought of.
0: Good that's question. Good, good question. question. And folks, if you think you have an answer to that, feel free to send an email to Matt's audio blog, M-A-T-T-S, audio blog at com, Or you can tweet to Matt's G-O-T blog on Twitter. Tid- tidbits. So the tidbits are the smaller points that we have in regards to this particular episode. I only have one, so I'm just going to spew it out there so that I can get uh, this off my chest and then I'll let you guys uh, play with whatever points you guys want to. But uh, Sansa, in regards to John and and Davos... Uh, has to tell a little bit of a lie about Brendan Blackfish. And she's getting better at her lying. Uh, but as Holly mentioned earlier, she's also letting Littlefinger get in her head. Um, and I feel like sending Brienne, uh, of course, is going to give us a, a couple of great moments in, in in the future episodes where she gets to see with uh, J- her buddy Jamie again. And I know that a lot of people who... Ship Brienne and Jamie are excited about that. Nonetheless, uh, this is a, a bit of a concern for Sansa. And, and one of the reasons why I said she's not any stronger as a result of the rape. She's still very vulnerable in the way that she lets somebody like Littlefinger manipulate her in a way, not, uh, not to the degree, and that's part of the triumph of the end of season seven is that it's finally shut down. She finally has overcome that. Um, but here, um, it does cause some problems. We'll see some squabbles between her and John in the future about various things about getting certain houses to fight for them, uh, up to who's going to rule Winterfell and how they're, how Winterfell is going to be ruled. Um, all of these things are, really the Im- embedded by the the quote that Bubba gave earlier, you know, your brother's army, half brother. I mean, just that little bit got into Sansa's head. And again, I say Sansa was already strong. Being raped didn't make her stronger. It just showed the strength that she had. Um and she still shows that she has weaknesses. That can be exposed um, And I love Sansa You know it's not like I'm assassinating Her character here It's just Sansa's human like the rest of us And Sansa's been through A heck of a lot more than most of us Ever will be in through So uh, give the girl a break But at the same time Understand that she just like every other character In this story Has flaws and has weaknesses And has You know situations that some are out of her control and some because they're out of her control have allowed her to be not the way we would like her to be. And it's easy to start to criticize that at the same time. Just please empathize with that before you criticize. That's all I have to say about that. Who else has a small point?
1: Um, I'll just add on to that. I'm, I'm thankful in this episode that – Sansa at least has a nice female companion Brienne to kind of like call her out on that lie a little bit and at least question it and maybe you know hopefully that kind of helps Sansa question her own motives and going Uh forward and why she needed to lie. Um, Everybody needs friends, guys. So um, I I like that aspect of it. My small point is kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier with Varys and the Red Priest, but just we didn't really touch on how specifically freaked out Varys was be- with all of the things the red priest was telling him about his life that you know we only know because he we heard him tell Tyrion this um and just seeing him you, we've never seen him so like perturbed or disturbed before now uh, and i just i just kind of like that moment seeing a a different side of Varys that we're not used to seeing and uh i guess you know red priestess firebirds are greater than little birds <laughs>
2: Well, my only tidbit is that this whole scene of the bloody hand, the play happening here, is based on a sample chapter of the next book, which who knows if we'll ever get, The Winds of Winter, where Arya is stationed at this play. And it's fun to see that even now, when theoretically there weren't books out, the showrunners were trying to pull anything they
0: could from George's uh, world. And so I, I liked seeing that. Well, and folks, let me just uh, say this as a qualifier for Bubba when he comments about the Winds of Winter. Holly and I met Bubba at Con of Thrones, (laughs) and we saw him, uh, he was part of the costume contest where he was a living version of the Winds of Winter, which had a bunch of POV chapter titles and a bunch of blank pages. This expresses Bubba's... Feelings about where George is in terms of his progress with this book. Is that not correct?
2: The photos are online, Matt. Just check them out. Just check them out on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash double P-H-Q. That's the word double, the letter P, the the letters H and Q for headquarters. Go there now, like the page, subscribe, donate, put your own photos up. It's all right there on the magic of the World Wide Web.
0: He is a social media king, that bubble boy. Holly, you got anything else for us? I
1: got a hot pie POV chapter from that costume. So thank you for that, Bubba. Um, um we saw on tidbits. I don't have anything.
0: <laughs> nope. Yeah, we
1: we already used mine up in the previous segments. So. Oh,
0: gotcha, gotcha. So with that, folks, we've kind of wrapped up the whole conversation about the story with the exception of our two little game show segments. They are Three Words, where we try to describe the episode in three words, and The Brothel Mates, the best coupling of the episode. Three Words is next.
2: Three Words, describing the episode in three
1: words.
0: Three little words Oh, what I'd give
2: for that wonderful phrase To hear those three little words
0: Three words. That's where you try to describe the episode in three words. As one of my co hosts tonight, who does the voiceovers for this podcast, just told you. Before we get into you describing the three words, my fellow co hosts here, Holly and Bubba, I want to say, folks, I have show notes for this podcast. Please read them. When you hear music underneath, the people that are playing that music is listed in the show notes. I don't ask you to buy their things. I don't ask you to do anything except just know their names. Mozart didn't sell a million CDs. Loser. He didn't, he didn't sell three billion MP3s. Weak. Exactly. You know what he did? He wrote, and people heard it. And He played piano, and people heard it. And they started talking about him. They learned his name. And they kept spreading his name, and then finally somebody said, "Oh, wait a minute! Everybody keeps talking about this Mozart guy. Maybe we should kind of categorize his work. Maybe we should try to save the things that he's written down." And now, hundreds of years later, we still know who Mozart is. So I'm I'm pro Solieri. Go, buddy, Solieri. Yes, we don't necessarily remember who his name was uh, always, hey, but. Uh, Music scholars, of course, do. At any rate, uh, be a music scholar yourself. And remember the names of the people who put music underneath this podcast. I thank you for it. It's the only way, since my name's listed in some of those sometimes also, it's the only way that I'll ever be immortal. Goodness knows, I'll never have sold enough CDs in my life. And even if I did, I couldn't take it with me. But if you remember my name and you tell your children my name, well, then I've already got a generation on most of my cohorts, right? So, let's move on to our three words for this particular episode. Bubba, why don't we start with you?
2: Okay, so this is a a shout-out to the great animated series from yesteryear, King of the Hill. My three words for this episode are, Damn it, Branny! Bran, why did you have to go and get impatient and cause all this trouble? You could have spent another year in the cave, up north, eating tree roots and... Oh, okay, now I get it. I understand. Damn it, Branny! That's my three words.
0: (laughs) Very good. I'm going to go with mine, because I feel like Holly will have a response to mine, if nothing else. Uh, My first one is... Well, actually, first I want to say that no one gets to say hold the door. That's not the three words you get to say. If you submit three words saying hold the door by submitting an email to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com or by tweeting to mattsgotblog on the Twitter, you will not be read. I'm just kidding. You absolutely will be read. I'm betting that I get about five of those this time around. But my three words or at least my first set, is timey-wimey titillation. You've heard us talk Doctor Who lingo this entire episode because of what happens between Bran and Hodor, and I was titillated by the possibilities that that aspect of this episode brought me. Holly, what are yours?
1: Um, Yes, so in response to that, this is clearly a fixed point in time for um, Hodor and Bran's journey together, so... Um, especially with Hodar. So I went with Wibbly Wobbly Willis.
0: Excellent. Excellent. I love it. Timey-wimey titillation, Wibbly Wobbly Willis. I love it. Uh, I have one last one, which is kind of goes across most of the storylines, or at least I feel do. I I stretched some of them so that they would go across this. Uh, The Waif said to Arya, or the Jockin said to Arya that uh, the Waif had a point. So has a point, is my three-words alternate. The Waif had a point. The Night King definitely has a point that he sticks through the Three-Eyed King uh, Three Eyed Raven. Euron had uh, a point, and Yara had a point that they were both trying to reach atop the Ironborn. Sansa makes a huge point about Littlefinger. Either you're an idiot or an enemy. The Children of the Forest use the point... Of a dragon glass to create the Night King. And I'm sure there's probably other ones that are more obvious that I'm just too inobvious to see or uh, too busy trying to stretch the other ones to make it work. But that is my second set of three words. Does anybody have a second set? The silence is deafening. We will move on to brothelmates of the episode next.
2: The best coupling of the episode. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you adore can
0: love. Brothelmates does not have to be two people. It can be a person and an object. I mean, we can get really kinky there, person and an object. We can get kinky with a person and a concept or a person and uh, an emotion. That's less kinky. That's actually more romantic, I guess. But I have a set of brothelmates right here that I think everybody can agree to, probably Danny and Jora. Not that kind of love so much, uh, but not in the uh, sexual way, but definitely a connection that can never truly be broken because of what they mean to each other. And my second brothel mates would be the Night King and Bran because through what do you call that? BDSM <laughs> leaving his mark on Bran Bran gives the greatest gift of all to the Night King a way to break the old magic, and I believe, as opposed to Holly, I believe, even come crashing through all of the barriers, including the wall. Holly, what have you got for us?
1: I'm, um, I'm, I'm hoping uh, my brothel mates are children of the forest and regret uh, for the monster they created and end up, you know, murdering them
0: all as well. So yeah, that's it. I agree. Uh, Leafs sacrifice, I think, shows the regret of that decision. Um, And even her conversation with Bran wasn't standoffish. It was just like, we had to. We didn't have a choice. And it was was almost apologetic by my interpretation. Love it. Now, Holly has had the privilege of doing Brothelmates with the Queen of Brothelmates, who is none other than our Song of Ice and Fire, Siren from the West, Kelly. But she also now has the chance to do Brothelmates with the king. This guy always comes up with great Brothelmates. He is the king of the Brothelmates. Baba, no pressure.
2: Well, no pressure at all, Matt, especially since you stole one of my two. That's right, I've got two sets of Brothelmates for this episode. Let's get to the first one that Matt rudely stole. They went on a long walk, and they had a meet-cute when he walked through his army of the dead and they made eye contacts and then why it reminded me of a classic song the night king sang he sang i want a brand with a slow hand i want a girl with an easy touch i want somebody who will spend some time in the cave not come and go in a miracle pulled rush when it comes to love, I'm nobody who understands. I want a brand with a slow hand. It's the Night King and Brand. They have a psychic connection. They love touching each other. And they are my first brothelmates of the week. But because it was so rudely stolen by our host and philanthropist, Double M, Matt Murdock, I've got, that's right, a second pair of brothelmates. And this one, I had to go deep, deep. That's right. I had to go under the sea, under the sea. Baby, it's better down where it's wetter, just you and me. So this couple, they were they were really into each other. They were into each other so much that, how do I say it? She got inside him and then came out of him. That's right. My brothel mates are Uncle Euron Greyjoy and Saltwater. They really had an incredible mix Euron just dove in and really took all her essence inside him. And it was like, oh, man, it was good. But then they had a tough breakup and he had to exhale his love, salt water. Yet they came to an understanding. They understand that, hey, when they're together, they're both wet. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, that's right. Turn down the lights and smoke a cigarette. Crazy Uncle Euron Greyjoy and Saltwater, my second pair of Brothelmates of the Week.
0: Oh, yeah. Love it. Love it, Bubba. I appreciate it. Folks, if you have any Brothelmates or three words for this particular podcast or this particular episode or any episode of Game of Thrones, feel free to submit them, Matt's Audioblog at gmail.com, M-A-T-T-S, Audioblog at gmail.com, or you can tweet to... Matt's G.O.T. blog on the Twitter. Folks, we'll be back with some closing thoughts in a sec.
2: Do love can make it Take my heart and please don't break it Love was made For me and you For me and you For me and you For me and you for me.
0: Folks, thanks so much for joining us for this particular episode. I really appreciate the conversations that we had. I appreciate being put in my place about some of my crazy crackpot stuff. I appreciate hearing wonderful thoughts from our guests. And I can't wait to hear your thoughts about this episode when you submit emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com or you submit tweets to Matt's GOT blog on Twitter about this particular episode. Don't forget March 5th. 2019 is your deadline for anything to get into the next feedback podcast, whatever that may be. You may have bad feedback about the podcast or positive feedback about the podcast itself, or you may have thoughts about this episode. I accept all kinds of feedback. Don't forget to leave your written reviews in whatever podcast app that you're using. If it allows you to do so, I do understand that there are many apps out there that people are getting podcasts from that they simply can't even rate podcasts or leave written reviews. You're totally what? fine. Yeah, it happens. I can't believe it either. Uh, it used to be it was just Apple podcasts, which I used to call iTunes. Uh, and you had to rate in order to get, you know, your own status up as well as the status of the podcast. It doesn't happen that way anymore. Nonetheless, I want to thank my guests who have been wonderful and very accommodating to my craziness in this particular episode. First of all, we thank the Song of Ice and Fire, Siren of the South. She is the Louisiana-bred George R. R. Martin and Game of Thrones expert. We love you, Holly. How can people talk to you about either of those mediums in the future?
1: Um, You can find me on Twitter at HuntPants, H-U-N-T Pants, and it's weird.
0: Very good. It is always weird to hear Holly say it's weird. Nonetheless, we love, of course, he's been a buddy of mine for a long time. I remember the first time he ever came on a fan call-in show way back in the days of Podcast Winterfell when I still knew nothing and Bubba knew less. But he did learn to do more. He absolutely... Learned how to do a better podcast than me. He learned how to have better thoughts than me. And I've been his schoolboy. I've been his his student ever since. Bubba, thanks again so much for joining me, man. I always appreciate everything that you do for this podcast. Uh, do it from the voiceovers to your wonderful thoughts uh, to your different takes on things. It's always wonderful. But you know, folks, that he has his own Podcast Network, where you can get this kind of stuff all of the time on a variety of shows. Bubba, please tell me about the Double P Media and also how people can talk to you about Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire.
2: The easiest way to find out about all the podcasts we do at Double P Media is go to our Twitter account or our Instagram account or our Facebook page. They're all at PHQ. On Instagram, on Twitter, Facebook.com slash b h q. It's your best way to hear more of this ridiculous silliness that I like to spit out there in between my little tiny bits of information. We want you guys to come see us. If you're coming to 2019 Con of Thrones, there's a good chance we'll all be there. You need to save Holly from me trying to show her rear window. So come on out and uh, hook up with us because we're going to be
0: wanting to meet great Game of Thrones fans just like you guys. I have my Valyrian pass, folks. I I have my Valyrian pass. I am gold. I'm already in there, baby. So uh, uh, ignore me, but look for the tall guy next to me. And that will be Bubba. And you'll find him there. And the really cute girl standing next to him, that will be Holly. And uh, enjoy talking to them while you ignore me. Folks, we'll see you next time. Bye.
2: been listening to Matt's audio blog. Find all contact information, back episodes, and podcast app links at mattsaudioblog.com.